Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the third episode, inspired by my friend Daniele's History on Fire podcast series on the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire. I'm going to tell you up front, I'm not particularly happy with this episode. I got way too ambitious and I was working on a deadline since I was trying to match Daniele's release schedule. Uh, The result, I think, is a bit of a meandering mess where... I try to put some ideas together about the psychology and politics of ritual human sacrifice in ancient societies. I did not achieve that goal to my satisfaction, and so I will be returning to this subject in the future. Still, there's a lot of interesting material in here, I think, even if it missed the overall uh, mark that I was going for. If you enjoy this podcast, please do consider subscribing to my Substack page, where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes available only to subscribers for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To all of you who are already contributing, thank you very much. You're what allows me to do what I do. You can find the Substack at martyrmade.substack.com. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? It's very common for people, uh, professionals as well as laymen like myself, to divide the history of our species up into broad epochs according to something like technological development, the level of development, or the the mode of economic production, say. In these formulations, you know, if we're talking about technological development, we might break our timeline up into the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and so on. If we're talking about mode of economic production, we might go with, you know, we might go instead with the Agricultural Revolution, the Industrial Age, and now we're in the Information Age, something like that. But... I've been interested for a long time in a more basic divisional criteria. Uh, I say more basic because we don't need to break up our history into a series of several successive ages. The revolution in human life that I'm talking about only has a before and an after. I want to talk today about the emergence of the state and the dawn of political tyranny. I'm using the word tyranny here in a broad sense. Tyranny doesn't necessarily have to be particularly oppressive on the everyday ground level toward most of the population. In the institutions of tyranny, they may be more or less responsive, depending on which one you're talking about, to input from and interaction with the people living under it. The point, though, is that the point is that you live under a set of institutions that make decisions with which you are then required to comply on pain of physical coercion or death. That probably sounds terrible, 
you know, physical coercion or death. Oh, what are we talking about? We must be talking about Maoist China or Hitler's Germany. And I am talking about those examples. But, and the libertarians out there will know where I'm going with this, I'm talking about all states, everywhere, and every action that any of them ever take. Again, this is a boilerplate libertarian talking point, so I'll try to get it out without choking. No offense to you guys. Uh, but it is worth emphasizing here. There is a death threat hiding behind every single law we pass, every regulation that we put in place, even in liberal democracies. You know, if I don't pay my taxes, it doesn't matter if I have a principled position like not wanting to help pay for an unjust war, say. If I don't pay those taxes, or even if I pay some of my taxes, but not all of them, yeah, first the government will send me a sternly worded letter, sure. But if I ignore it, and I continue to refuse, whatever the reason, at some point down the line, men in uniforms armed with guns will show up to seize my property, or to literally, you know, in 2017, as advanced as we are, to literally place me in shackles and chains and throw me in a cage. And if I say, wait a second here, wait, 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 this is a free country, supposedly, I haven't done anything to anybody, you have no right to do this to me, and you have no right to be here. In fact, you are armed intruders in my house, get out. And I try to defend my property and defend myself, the police are not only authorized, they are required to escalate their use of force to whatever level is necessary to gain my compliance, including killing me if I defend myself enthusiastically enough. Now, libertarians, they stop right there. They look at that reality and they don't like it, so they recoil from it. you got to know something about the alternatives to move past a libertarian position. I'm not denouncing this arrangement. It's just the nature of law. Okay, it's what law is. And the state is an institution that has a monopoly on legitimate violence. Well, for most of human history, nobody had a monopoly on violence. In societies without a state, no one has a monopoly on violence. It's a question of whether or not you can carry it out and then defend yourself afterwards. And that's it. Questions of legitimacy had little or no real meaning whatsoever outside the kinship group, outside the clan or the tribe. If somebody from another, another tribe harms or kills a member of your clan or tribe, you are honor-bound to avenge him, period, because deterrence is the only means of security available when there are no cops, no courts, no jails, or anything like that. But of course it works both ways, so you get into these long cycles of violence, sometimes last generations. You know, if you successfully avenge your kinsmen, say somebody from another tribe kills somebody from your tribe, and so you kill him, well now his tribe is honor-bound to avenge him by taking out you or another one of your people. And if they do that, you're honor-bound to avenge that, and on and on. This is what served as the closest thing to law from the beginning of our species until relatively very, very recently. Well, a primary function of all states when they emerge is to establish a monopoly over this whole process. If two people have a dispute, instead of calling on their kinsmen and resorting to self-help, now they go before the state institution, you know, before the judge or the magistrate or whatever, for arbitration, and the decisions of the institution are final. If someone kills your brother, doesn't matter how ugly it was or how unjust, you call the cops. 
If you go take revenge, doesn't matter how bad it was, you are a murderer, and the state will hunt you down and deal with you. Well, okay, no kidding. In places like Western Europe or the Anglo countries, we completely take this for granted. But you can't take it for granted throughout most of human history, or even in large parts of the world today. For most of human history, or if you're in much of the world today, somebody could kill your brother in front of 10,000 witnesses, and the only thing that mattered was whether or not you or the people that you could get together could go back and take revenge, because there is no higher authority to which you can appeal. One of the big problems that European colonialists ran into, or modern nation builders today, for that matter, uh, one of the problems results from coming in and trying to impose a state monopoly on violence over tribal societies that are still operating according to honor and vendetta. From mandatory Palestine under the British in the 1920s to Afghanistan under the United States in 2017, for example... We keep running into a problem again and again. In so many of these places, we run into problems getting local police forces that we establish to enforce the law because they're worried, rightly, about incurring a blood feud with the kinsmen of whoever it is that they're expected to go after. Or, this is a nightmare in Afghanistan. We step into the middle of a tribal vendetta that's maybe been going on for years. Maybe it's been going on for decades. We step right into the middle of it, and only see the most recent act in that cycle of violence. We say, oh, that guy right there, that guy's a criminal, take him out. Well, now it looks to his tribe like we're just taking the side of their tribal enemy and their vendetta. You often hear critics of the Iraq war say that, or, or even people who were proponents of it at the time, say that we shouldn't have removed Saddam Hussein from power because... In retrospect, only someone like that can possibly hold together a population of different tribes and ethnicities and religious sects in the absence of some overriding national identity to which all those more local identities are subordinate. Well, that's a very difficult reality for us to, 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 to accept with our sensibilities. You know, on one hand, it's just not possible for us to approve of Saddam's methods as a necessary evil or even as the unfortunate but inevitable excesses of a state attempting to establish its authority over a territory that's you know, dominated by tribes and sects who don't consider the state legitimate. And, it, and if you go read about some of Saddam's methods and you still approve of, of them in, in any context, I think you probably need to have your head checked. But on the other hand, this is what you would say in return, on the other hand, for all our high-mindedness, we sure as hell haven't been able to figure out any other way forward that actually works, as evidenced by the complete breakdown of any society where we remove one of these leaders. And then, no matter how much money we spend or people we send over, our complete inability to put Humpty Dumpty back together again using methods that we actually consider acceptable. I think we're often biased toward believing that brutal leaders lead to unstable societies, and I suppose that that's probably true depending on your starting conditions, but most of the time the reality is that unstable societies lead inexorably to brutal leaders. But there was a time before, before any of this. There was a time before tyranny. Marvin Harris, in his book Our Kind, wrote, quote, Let me hear no more of our kind's natural necessity to form hierarchical groups. An observer viewing human life shortly after cultural takeoff 
would easily have concluded that our species was destined to be irredeemably egalitarian except for distinctions of sex and age. That someday the world would be divided into aristocrats and commoners, masters and slaves, billionaires and homeless beggars would have seemed wholly contrary to human nature as evidenced in the affairs of every single human society then on earth, end quote. Similarly, the anthropologist Richard Lee, who spent a lot of time with the Kung Bushmen in Africa, contrasts the nomadic situation to uh, that of the situation that, that settled, civilized societies find themselves in. Quote, The human condition is about poverty, injustice, exploitation, war, suffering. To seek the human condition, one must go to the barrios, shanty towns, and palatial mansions of Rio, Lima, and Mexico City, where massive inequalities of wealth and power have produced fabulous abundance for some and misery for most. When anthropologists look at hunter-gatherers, they are seeing something else, a vision of human life and human possibilities without the pomp and glory, but also without the misery and inequity of state and class society." End quote. The most primitive human groups are nomadic extended families, basically, usually a few dozen individuals at most. They're foragers and scavengers and hunters of small game, usually engaged in what's called an immediate return economy. An immediate return economy just means that they lack any means to store surplus resources or to keep food from spoiling, so they use what they get as they get it. Immediate return. In these societies, social prestige results not from amassing wealth, because you can't really amass wealth, but from sharing what you get with everybody else. There's no permanent social hierarchy beyond that structured by kin relations. And as bands begin to grow from you know close-knit extended families into larger clans and into tribes from there, the kinship system starts to become very intricate so that you know, maybe you have a particular authoritative relationship with your husband's father, but a different one with his oldest brother, a different relationship to his youngest brother, and all of these are defined and structured relative to one another differently, and this applies out to cousins and in-laws and so forth. But even relationships structured by the kinship system always have a very strong element of voluntarism running through them at least for adult males. When I'm talking about egalitarianism in these societies, I'm obviously talking about adult males. In these societies, no one has real power to coerce another person into doing something that he doesn't want to do. And the kinship system itself, actually, is not, it's not really a hierarchy, not in the term that the, not, not, not the way we generally use the term. You know, there is no abstract hierarchy. You can't remove your father from his position in the hierarchy and slide somebody else into that slot, for example. Your father has authority because he is your father, but he's not occupying a position of power that can be transferred to somebody else. Sometimes one or several men might be put in charge of something like a war party, but when the war is over, their power is dissolved. It's always contextual. Authority is always personal and charismatic. Somebody might accrue prestige by being a great hunter who shares everything he kills, or by successfully resolving disputes between community members in a way that everybody consistently sees as fair, but 
those people, nevertheless, they, they, they can gain prestige and authority comes from that, charismatic authority, but they have no political power. And the penalties for crossing them are ostracism and people refusing to cooperate with you, social disapproval, basically. All of primitive society is arrayed against the possibility of political or economic inequality emerging. Not only is there very little opportunity for individuals or small groups to, to, to seize anything like tyrannical power, but kinship-based societies also have fierce prohibitions set up against you know, any attempt to do that. It's been observed, you've probably heard stories of how if an alpha chimpanzee uh, becomes too much of a tyrant, very often a few somewhat weaker males will team up and take him out. You find that exact type of behavior, pattern of behavior, in low-complexity hunter-gatherer societies. Even when you do read of tribes that do have official permanent chiefs, um, usually a closer reading, almost always that I'm familiar with, a closer reading reveals that the position is much more of an obligation than a privilege. Pierre Clastres uh, has a book called Society Against the State, and in it he observes three characteristics common to all the chiefs of nomadic hunter-gatherer societies that he studied. First, he said a chief is the peacemaker. He arbitrates the disputes, and he acts as a sort of moderating force within the group. I talked a lot about this in the third episode of the Israel-Palestine series, the Shop Talk episode on Arab tribal dynamics, so if you haven't caught that or you want to revisit that part in depth, you can. Um, anyway, non-state societies without fixed courts of law or jails where disputes have to be settled by the parties themselves. Gaining a reputation for being able to fairly and honestly and successfully bring conflicting parties to mutual agreement, that is one of the best and clearest ways to gain social esteem, generalized, you know, social social esteem. The second thing he says, uh, the tribal chiefs are always supremely generous, almost absolutely generous. It's typically expected that a chief will accept any material request that's earnestly made of him by any other member of the group. And finally, the chief is invariably a good public speaker and storyteller. The social theorist Morris Berman um, he once related a good story originally told by the anthropologist I just mentioned, Richard Lee, um, about an experience he had with the Kung Bushmen on the African Kalahari. Berman wrote, quote, One of the most compelling stories is Richard Lee's famous tale of eating Christmas in the Kalahari. Lee decided to buy the Kung Bushmen, among whom he was living, an ox for Christmas. He was grateful to the Bushmen for their cooperation in his researches and managed to procure the largest, meatiest ox that was around for the upcoming feast. The reaction was not what he had expected. His first visitor, a 65-year-old mother of five, called the animal a bag of bones, claiming it was old and thin. Next, a delegation of young men came to his evening fire, complaining that the ox was an old wreck, thin to the point of death, the third round was a cattle owner, who showed up the next morning shaking his head and telling Lee, I'm surprised at you. You've lived here for three years and still haven't learned anything about cattle. And on and on. One of the best hunters, Tommaso, came by to tell Lee that he should buy a different cow, one with fat on it. A Kung elder worried that if Lee served such a scrawny animal, fights would break out among groups that had feuded in the past. Lee was ready to pack it in and leave, but curiosity got the better of him 
and he decided to stay for the slaughtering and see what, indeed, was under the skin. As the animal was cut, and thick layers of desirable fat burst forth, the tribesmen rolled on the ground, nearly paralyzed with laughter. Then the men packed large chunks of beef into the cooking pots, muttering all the while about the worthlessness of the animal. They danced and ate for two days and nights. Realizing that he had been had, Lee decided to seek out one of the young men who had derided the ox at Lee's evening campfire the previous week. "'Why did you tell me that the ox was worthless?' he asked the young man. "'When you knew it was loaded with fat.' "'It is our way,' the young man replied. "'A bushman who has been hunting, for example, must not come back and announce a big kill. "'He must sit in silence until someone asks him about it. "'Then we all go out to look at the animal and tell him it's just a bag of bones, "'but that we'll slaughter it anyway, even though it's hardly worth it.' "'Similarly, Tommaso explained to Lee, "'It's about arrogance. "'When a member of the tribe kills much meat, "'he can come to think of himself as a chief "'and the rest of us as his servants.' Someday, his pride will lead him to kill someone. End quote. This is the attitude we find all over the world among nomadic hunter-gatherers. You know, it's not just that they haven't reached a stage of development where something like tyranny could emerge. The people are quite aware of the possibility that it could emerge, and they actively stamp out any sign of status-seeking. And again, it's not that these societies are all flowers and rainbows, that they aren't violent or can't be oppressive in their own way. The last episode on cannibalism hopefully dispelled any notion like that, but what you don't see is systematic tyranny internal to social groups, or, or systematic tyranny of one group over other groups. You just don't see it. But that whole way of life, everything begins to change. That, that whole way of life begins to come apart as soon as people begin to settle down in one spot. And decide to stop being nomads and stay in one place. Compare the egalitarianism, just the attitude of it, and, and the way of life that must result from it, the, the, the way people relate to one another you know, interpersonally. Compare the egalitarianism illustrated by Richard Lee's story with the Kung Bushmen to a few anecdotes from early contact settled societies. The ruling classes of early settled societies engage in Extreme tyranny, almost always, often treating commoners almost like an opposing side in a military conflict who can be despoiled, injured, or killed at will. Robert Pickering Ash was a missionary who spent six years in British Uganda, and he wrote about his experiences there. And part of his writing uh, covers the following incident, quote, A poor peasant was coming in the opposite direction, carrying some sweet potatoes on his head, doubtless a day's food. At a signal from the Kadulubare, the head wife, the youngster in charge swaggered up to the peasant and ordered him to stand and deliver. The peasant, not liking to lose his family's dinner, demurred, whereupon the young man began to lay his stick across the back of this insolent slave who dared to refuse his potatoes to his superiors. I have seen a similar party a few days previously meet a little girl and quietly strip her of her clothing and leave her to go her way without a single rag. It is the custom that the great and powerful have carte blanche to seize people on the road and take whatever they are carrying, end quote. And in a different account, this one from Hawaii, I'm getting it from one of Eli Sagan's books, um, although I haven't been able to find the, find the source. It's a, it's a book called Formations by a guy named Haman. I haven't been able to find it, but here's the account, quote, I have seen a considerable chief at Wahoo sit in his canoe alongside, without an article for sale himself, 
and watch a poor fellow that had perhaps paddled from the opposite side of the island with all his family and perhaps all their worldly property and substance, such as two or three pigs, a few plantains, pieces of cloth, and some breadfruits. And after selling their little cargo and getting forward a few bits of iron and some little trinkets, things, the iron in particular, that are inestimable to them, that greedy and tyrannical chief hath jumped out of his canoe into the water, swam to the poor man, and demanded of him every article which he and his family had. End quote. In Buganda, uh, which is uh, a kingdom in British Uganda around Lake Victoria, the custom was for women to nurse for three years and to refrain from sexual contact during the period of suckling. So when the king had a child by one of his favorite wives, whose sexual services he didn't want to give up for three years, one of his men would go out on the roads and into the villages and find a commoner woman who had a newborn child and order her to go to the court right then and there where she would be required to nurse the king's baby for three years until it was weaned while her own baby was required to be brought up on cow's milk. In these early settled societies, whether assault, murder, rape, things like that were considered crimes completely dependent on the social class of the victim and the accused. In Tonga, for example, men of higher rank could simply rape women of lower rank at will. It meant nothing, and there was no redress possible in almost every case. You know, Today we hear stories of the grossest tyrannies. We hear about how Uday Hussein, Saddam's son, uh, would see women walking with their husbands or find them even at their weddings, and he would have his bodyguards go get her and bring him to her for, for rape. And we hear that, and it's just the most egregious irredeemably tyrannical thing that we can even come up with, that's every early settled society. And it only abates a bit in early civilizations as the class structure becomes solidified. And every means available to mark out and define class distinctions was employed by these people. You know, Only the nobility would be permitted to wear certain clothing or accessories or to do their hair or paint themselves up in a certain way or to eat certain foods or walk in a certain manner or to hold certain ceremonies and participate in certain festivals or play certain games, anything you can think of, was used as, as a mark of distinction for differentiating between the classes. In Buganda, again, a social inferior that was meeting somebody of higher rank would be required to bend all the way over, looking down to the ground with his hands on his knees and, and sort of positioning his head so that the back of his neck was wide open in case the higher aristocrat wanted to kill him. And this was something that even the nobility was required to do with their superiors, actually. When, when commoners found themselves in the same situation, they were actually required to get on their knees and, and grasp onto the lower legs of their superior, addressing him as master, essentially starting every interaction they have with their superiors with a plea for mercy. They weren't allowed to use one hand to give anything to a superior. They had to present anything that they handed to a superior with both hands with their head bowed. Um, in Tonga, people paid respect to their chiefs by kneeling down and, and taking the, the, the chief's ankle and placing his foot on the top of their head. Reinforcing hierarchy when the hierarchy is new becomes a full-time obsession, and nobody is ever, ever allowed to forget where they stand. And the Aztecs did all of the things that I'm talking about here in spades, by the way. My favorite Mesoamerican scholar, Inga Clenenden, she talks a lot about this in her, books, uh, in her book, Aztecs, an interpretation. Quote, Were we to judge only from its complex modes of formal address and the rigor of its rules and decorum, 
we would construe Tenochtitlan as a most delicately articulated society, ordered by strict protocols of deference. So I think it was, from some perspectives. But despite the rhetoric of its sedate managers extolling the beauty of self-effacing humility and control, the city was a startlingly violent place, with much of that violence neither individual nor unscheduled, but licensed and official. It was most dramatically visible, of course, in the killings of captives and slaves, and in the processing of their bodies within city limits, the battlefield shambles delivered into the home place. But extravagant violence was also visited upon the townsfolk. When priests of the rain god Tlaloc were returning to the city with the bundles of reeds required for a major festival, they were licensed to seize the possessions of anyone unwise enough to cross their path. Should those who were plundered dare to offer any resistance, they were stripped and savagely beaten. They kicked each of them. They beat them repeatedly. They beat the skin off them. Then they left them naked and moaning in the road. House walls gave no certain refuge. In the same Tlaloc festival which sanctioned priestly violence, local commoners were faced with trick-or-treat importunings, not from children, but from dancing bands of warriors and pleasure girls threatening to break their walls down and they had to buy them off with a scoop of an, ex of an especially luxurious maize and bean porridge. Play, perhaps, but play with a bright edge of threat. Mexica justice was summary, brutal, public, and often enough lethal. Most offenders against Moctezuma's laws died most publicly, with the marketplace the favored venue, where adulterers were stoned or strangled, and habitual drunkards had their heads beaten in by Moctezuma's executioners, and thus the ruler implanted fear. The poor are given scant attention in the sources as we have them. As so often, they press silently from beyond the rim of the described. We glimpse figures slipping into the fields after the corn harvest, scuffling with their feet among the dry maize stalks for the forgotten or undeveloped ears, tucking their small gleanings into their cloaks. We see a man still striving to find acceptance at a feast, intent despite his rags on being recognized and welcomed as a participant in the feasting community. Others had abandoned that hope. A prayer to Tezcatlipoca urging his compassion on the misery of the common folk invokes the silent figure at one's house entrance who thrusts forth a few withered chilies and salt cakes for sale. And nowhere does he succeed in selling. Somewhere by one's enclosure, in a corner, by someone's wall, he is saddened. He is dry-mouthed. He moisteneth his lips. He just continueth looking at the people, just looking at their mouths. Those scattered images speak of habituated poverty and of the isolation of the poverty-stricken with no claims on the rich. Just how firmly based the social divisions were, and how eroded the notion of supra-kinship fellowship, super fellowship was, is indicated in the maintenance of these social divisions even throughout the last agonizing days of Tenochtitlan's resistance to the Spaniards. In the siege-induced famine, when the common people were reduced to eating lizards, swallows, bitter grasses, and even to gnawing on the adobe walls, and yet, when the political order still somehow sustained itself, there was no care to distribute equitably the little food there was. The power of rank was preserved to the last. For the poor, acceptance or rejection by a superior of a claim to dependence could be a matter of life and death. We hear of local occasions when generosity was warmed by the birth of a child or some other personal triumph, and poor men crowded into the courtyard hoping to be recognized and invited to seat themselves. Others, more desperate, simply clustered round the dwellings of the lords, offering their need and their anxious deference 
in hope for a bit of food. The Mashika even had a word for the business of hanging around the edges of feasts, waiting for handouts, desperate to suck up a little of the sweetness. They called it horneting, or bumblebeeing. Some miserable would-be bumblebees, pressing themselves forward, desperate for recognition, were left neglected, ignored, and humiliated. Anxious to go, unable to endure it, until they despaired and went on to beg for food at another household. End quote. And then she goes on. Clannadin's great, by the way. She's a brilliant writer, as you can probably tell. Um, she goes on to describe a very peculiar form of social welfare among the Aztecs. It really gives you an idea of how much all of this was intended not only to elevate the great and the powerful, but to grind down and humiliate the weak and the helpless, to remind them with great psychological force of where they stood in the hierarchy. As I read this quote, again, keep in mind that this is emerging out of an earlier situation among hunter-gatherers where egalitarianism was absolutely the rule, and any attempt by anybody to place himself above another person was vigorously discouraged and attacked. And now here's Clenenden, quote, Clearly there was no notion of charity, nor any trace of the Christian notion of the virtue of giving to the poor. Nonetheless, need was acknowledged in a brief recurrent period of largesse. In two consecutive months, called the Little and the Great Feast Day of the Lords, the ruler and his lord showed their bounty. The terms of the distribution for the second month, for which we happen to have a good description, are worth analysis. The poor, men and women, young and old, arrived at dawn at the distribution point. There are great canoes, according to Sahagun, being presumably the largest ad hoc containers available, that had been filled with maize gruel. The people were allowed to take as much gruel as would fill the vessels which they had brought. Some, lacking bowls or gourds, scooped it up as best they could in their clothing, a disturbing glimpse of their desperation. The gruel drunk they were made to wait, talking quietly, twittering like birds, it is recorded, until noon, when they were arranged to receive their midday meal of a single handful of tamales. That food gift was not designed for maximum nourishment. Lordly food was doled out, tamales from the rich man's table, his wealth shown in the intricacy and elaboration of the confection, with the maize dough twisted and plated and perhaps crested with seeds, the filling savory. There was commonly serious hunger at this season, not long before the new harvest came in and with the maize expensive in the market, and some individuals attempted to grab more than their dole. Their punishment was to be beaten by the servitors and to have what food they had taken from them. And every year, in one or another of the anxious lines, and eventually all of them, the food ran out. This was by design. Those suddenly deprived of hope broke and ran to where the food was still being distributed, only to be beaten back by their more fortunate fellows. The unlucky ones stood, we are told, and wept, for themselves, their hungry children, and their evil fortune. Connoisseurs of welfare systems will notice some interesting aspects. The food distribution continued over eight days. For eight days, individuals and families could hope at best to receive for a whole day's waiting some maize gruel and one handful of tamales, and that only if they were patient, docile, and fortunate. They were given no food for those unable to participate directly in the gift-giving, for the old or sick or those who had sought to hire themselves out for labor for the day. This was, for all its rigor, a personal transaction. And in the evenings of all those eight days, the lords and warriors danced, displaying themselves in their most sumptuous array, and then retired to feast. 
So much, we might say, for the largesse of the lords, which looks to us more like a scenario for a riot. Yet so it was called, and so presumably it was seen, as a gesture of lordly generosity. This suggests an intensifying imbalance of reciprocities in the urban milieu, where dependence, poverty, no longer compelled response, yet where any resort to direct action or self-help, as we might see it, was punished vigorously and physically, not only by the agents of the lords, but by one's companions. Distance was what was being insisted upon, in the delicate taste of lordly food in the mouth, in the high contrast between the patient meekness of the lowly during the day and the public dancing and feasting of the privileged during the night. Deference and submission were exacted, but there was no corresponding obligation on the part of the lord. There is also that interesting element of wanton chance built into the situation, of denial of agency, and that one could find oneself, however dutifully submissive, forced to accept one's powerlessness and submit to one's ill fortune if the food ran out. The unabashed ruthlessness of such a system and its psychological implications is hard for us to grasp, accustomed as we are to a softer or at least more convoluted rhetoric of deserts and duties. End quote. I'm not aware of any nomadic hunter-gatherer society with anything like a rigid class system, but nor am I aware of any sedentary society that doesn't have one form or another of class oppression. People often imagine with Rousseau that the day of the noble savage, such as he was, came to an end with the advent of agricultural civilization, but that's not, that's not quite right. It's on the right, right track, but it's not quite right. Hierarchy and what we would start to call tyranny emerge without agriculture under the right circumstances. For example, you know, again, when a particularly bountiful piece of territory causes nomads to settle down in one spot that's actually worth fighting for. As soon as that happens, as soon as they settle down on that bountiful spot, you've introduced an element of possession that didn't exist before. You've introduced the possibility of monopolizing resources which didn't exist before. And there's just a whole host of downstream consequences that aren't necessarily obvious right off the bat. The Kwakiutl natives of the northwest coast of North America, we talked a lot about them in the last episode. They're a great example of a non-agricultural society that became mostly sedentary because their land and the adjacent ocean provided for them so well that they decided to just stay put. Instead of wandering around looking for food, they settled near the coast, built canoes, and then went wandering out on the ocean looking for food. So the Kwakutl were not agricultural, and they, they lacked the institutional structures that Rousseau would have associated with tyranny, and yet they kept slaves, they went to war, they had an emerging division of labor as you know specialists were needed for complex tasks like building canoes. And, and moreover, instead of having traditions and customs that discouraged status-seeking, um, you know, you'll remember from the last episode, if you've listened to it, uh, the Kwakutl were obsessed with status, aggressively seeking to elevate themselves and to degrade and humiliate their rivals as much as possible. When Europeans made contact with them, and especially as Europeans came and brought in new resources and weapons and forms of wealth that could be carried around, the high-status men and, and, and aggressive groups around them began dominating resources and expanding their networks of dependence in a way that you really have to start calling political. 
you know, dependency itself. I, I mentioned their dependence just now. Dependency is something that is almost entirely foreign to less developed hunter-gatherers. But in Quaqueudal society, where the primary food was fish caught from a canoe, you know, you might have a man who has five canoes. Uh, he can approach another man whose canoe was lost at sea or destroyed in a raid, for example, and offer to let him use one of his own canoes in exchange for a portion of, you know, the unfortunate man's catch, the fish that he catches. That sounds so basic to us, but as soon as that happens, I mean, that is an absolute revolutionary change in the way human beings relate to one another. As opposed to immediate return hunter-gatherers where everyone hunts and gathers and shares and eats, and a great hunter is honored and revered for his contribution and generosity, a group like the Quaqueudal move into what's called a delayed return economy. And what that means is just instead of your direct action providing immediately providing resources that are necessary for life right now, now you have people taking actions that are only indirectly related to resource provision, and the resources are collected later on. For example, lending someone one of your canoes in exchange for some of the fish he catches. Instead of social prestige going to the great hunter, now you can start to see emergent elites who don't maybe don't participate in the work of the group at all. You might have somebody only receiving fish from all of his dependents and using the surplus that he gets from that to give feasts so he's creating more dependents and to create a sense of loyalty among the ones he's got. It starts to build on itself. This sort of patron-client relationship, you know, once you get here, it's a, only a step away from politics in the modern sense, and it creates a division between those who receive income as a result of their existing wealth and status and those who do the work of the group. And this kind of dependency relationship, once it's introduced, you know, again, it's self-reinforcing. It immediately begins to corrode the, the authority of the kinship system. Who's to say whether you should prioritize the wishes of your grandfather or the demands of the wealthy patron whose generosity you and your family are, are dependent upon for your survival? Or what if your patron, say, comes into conflict with another wealthy man who happens to be providing patronage to a few of your cousins? If both of the patrons you know, call on you and your cousins to rise up and defend them, do you fight your cousins? Do you support your patron? You, know, you can start to see the kinship system breaking down. And the outlines of hierarchy and real political power, they already begin to emerge. No agriculture needed. But even a society as complex and advanced as the Quaqueudal, they're still not consolidated into anything that you could have imagined, you know, making the leap to ancient Egypt, say, or Sumer, without a boost. They're more than one step away from that. And you need some sort of an explanation of how they got there. Because there's still a limiting factor that keeps hunter-gatherer societies in most parts of the world relatively decentralized. And it's that, at the end of the day, if things get too bad, and your group's position becomes too compromised by some would-be tyrant trying to lord over you, you can always just leave. You can pack up your group and just move a little bit out of the range of the bully. Yeah, maybe there's not quite as much, you know, quite as many fish as you move a little bit down the Oregon coast, but there are fish, and you can just get out of range. And if everybody does that, then he'll just be there shouting at himself. So there's sort of this natural, you know, shock absorber among hunter-gatherers, because what's the point of even trying? All the places where we find the first civilizations popping up, 
the archaic civilizations that we recognize by that term, were circumscribed in one way or another. They penned people in. Sumer arose, you know, in the basin between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Egypt along the Nile flanked by deserts on either side. The first Indian civilization was in the Indus River Valley, the first Chinese in the Yellow River Valley, and so on. Once you start to get a bunch of people from unrelated tribal lineages packing up into an enclosed area, or at least an area that would be very costly and uncertain to leave, then everything begins to really change. Individuals and groups start to look at each other a little bit differently. Because competition is no longer play. You're not just, you know, raiding another tribe's horses or, or you know, trying to score points like that. You know, you're looking around at each other and saying, okay, we're all here, and we're starting to realize there's only so much space and so many resources, and our populations are all growing, and maybe we don't have a problem with each other right now, but we can all start to look down the road and see that eventually some decisions are going to have to be made. Game theoretical necessities begin to impose themselves, you know. Groups begin to ally and consolidate. This is what starts to happen. Societies become more regimented and militarized, and institutions of command and control replace customs designed to thwart the you know, formation of hierarchies. In fact, you can say that the early states are essentially military organizations superimposed over social life. But there is something more going on than just the playing out of these game-theoretical consequences, too. As the kinship system breaks down, and it comes into conflict with new forms of social affiliation and dependency, there emerges a need to define and police the boundaries of newly emerging social identities. A kin group doesn't need to define itself. Even a large tribe, you know, say the Saudi royal family, I think has over 15,000 members, even a tr large tribe like that understands itself as descending from common blood. And sometimes this type of kinship is fictional, and part of the purpose of tribal myths is to tell a story that writes the people you want to be included into the tribe into the tribal lineage, but the foundation and the border of the tribal identity is blood. When a society begins to loosen blood ties as the primary basis of their collective self-understanding in favor of something more recent and, I guess, more ephemeral, like national identity, for example, the boundaries and character of the new people become open questions. You don't have to police the boundaries of your family, other than, you know, maybe telling your sons and daughters who they can and can't marry, which all tribal societies did. Uh, when you start talking about something that's more symbolic, something that isn't so, so solid as blood, well, now policing those borders and making definitions of us and them becomes you know, an all-consuming enterprise. And the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Old Testament, tells a story in the early going of the emergence from nothing of Jewishness as a social identity. A single patriarch, Abraham, gives birth to a son, Isaac, who bears Jacob, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then things come apart for a while, and their descendants lose their way in Egypt for a few centuries, and all but forget about their covenant with God, and with God mostly forgetting about them for 400 years or so. Finally, Moses gets the message, and when Moses leads them out of Egypt, 
he's basically leading a horde of people who no longer have any real cultural memory of their tribal mythology. And they've got to be formed into a coherent people again before they can be permitted to rejoin you know, their, their ethnic cousins in the land that they had left behind. So rather than leading them back home, God determines that they have to wander in circles around the Sinai Desert for 40 years until all of the original people <laughs> that he actually led out of Egypt all die off because they've been too corrupted by foreign ways and only the children born in the desert are permitted to enter the promised land. But even then, God knows that unless there are firm boundaries marking them off from the people that they'll meet there, they're eventually just going to melt away through intermarriage and assimilation into the more established societies with a more stable and coherent social identity. And so they're given a list of over 600 very strange and arcane rules that they have to follow that dictate everything from how to dress and how to prepare and eat food, basically a big legal code that ensures everybody is able to tell the difference between a Hebrew and a Canaanite. And to drive the point home, at a certain point in the desert, Moses orders all the people to assemble before him, and he gets there with his lieutenants out in the middle of the desert, and you can imagine it in the twilight hours with this big horde of people assembled in a desert lit by fire and moonlight, looking up to Moses and his men, as they slaughter several bulls, draining all their blood up into great, great tubs, big basins. And you can imagine how much blood we're talking about if you're draining several bulls, and then drawing blood out from the tubs and throwing it out to soak on the crowd of people. You know, but, but even then, the great problem of the whole Hebrew Bible is that the Jews again and again do in fact become friendly with their neighbors and marry their daughters and join in their festivals and customs, and for that they are punished again and again. The whole lesson of the Old Testament, it's something that the Jews have carried with them today, is don't forget who you are. Don't assimilate. Police your borders. Because if you lose that sense of social identity, you lose everything. It's very difficult for us versus them distinctions to become blurred among real kinship-based societies. Um, as tribes grow and mythology emerges to knit together the disparate threads when the case for blood relations becomes a bit fuzzy, the distinctions between us and them can become fuzzy as well. Having any sense of us at all, having a sense of us at all, creates a consciousness of the other. They're really just two sides of the same coin. They're saying the same thing from different perspectives. The only way not to have a sense of the stranger is to not have any sense of us. And a coherent sense of us seems to start dissolving as soon as a meaningful other leaves the scene. Well, I should say that's most likely what would happen if the external other were removed. But there is a way around it, and it's an ugly way, but it does work. So, unfortunately, we see examples of it all over the world and throughout history up to the present day. And the workaround is just to simply create an internal other. You lose the external other, create an internal other. Now, sometimes this is pretty straightforward. Uh, if your group conquers a territory and then designates the people that you've conquered as the internal underclass, the friend-enemy distinction is a you know, pretty clear line that you can maintain. The Spartans, for example, were outnumbered by their Helot slave class. They were always worried about rebellion. You know, you don't have to worry so much about an external enemy defining you or reminding you of who you are and why it's important to stick together if you've got a restless underclass in your own society. But 
it would be wrong, though, to imagine that an internal underclass emerges only as the result of events like conquest of a different tribal or ethnic group. good counterexample is pre-contact Hawaii, for example. Um, there were a class of untouchables in pre-contact Hawaii who were racially, they were indistinguishable from the rest of the Hawaiian people, but they were considered so low that even commoners at the bottom of the social totem pole turned their noses up at them and were forbidden from interacting with them. You might say if external enemies define the horizontal boundaries of your social identity, the underclass puts a bottom underneath it. External enemies maybe are the horizon. The underclass tells you where the floor is. It sends a message to even the lowliest commoner among our people that he's nevertheless still a part of our people because at least he's not one of them. In some ways, racism has functioned similarly in the United States, which as a country has enjoyed... I mean, if you could even call these periods that only a few brief periods of relative social tranquility and unity in our history. After the Civil War in the 1860s, immediately after that, we had a huge influx of Irish, Italians, Jews, and Southern Europeans coming in, just a torrent coming in for decades afterward, causing something of a national identity crisis right at the time that it became necessary to reintegrate the conquered South back into the national project. This was when the importance of the concept of whiteness, a concept which had been present before, but now it was sort of, it came to the forefront as a means of bringing together the disparate European-American peoples and the collective persecution of the African-American, even if it was only vicarious for the vast majority of people who never really interacted with them, it, it nevertheless served as an outlet for the hostility that, that might otherwise have been exploited to reignite grievances that led to the Civil War. You know, the thing is, whether this dynamic was consciously understood or just unconsciously sort of emerged to fill a social psychological gap, it actually worked for the most part. You know, I, I don't want to say for what it was intended because it may have been unconscious, but it, it did achieve the thing we're talking about here. There were many reasons that Irish and Italian and Southern European Americans went from being unwelcome pariahs to being more or less needed into the American social dough, but one of them, for sure has to do with the mass migration of southern blacks up into the northern industrial cities, creating that proximity, and it, and it created a polarity that crowded all Europeans over onto the side labeled white, because now you had something to contrast yourselves with. It was no longer the English and the... You know, after fighting in two world wars, uh, the American Whiteness Project, for lack of any better phrase was more or less complete. English, German, Scandinavian, Irish, Italian, and the rest, they were just white people after World War II, for the most part. And so as soon as that happened, like clockwork, as soon as that collective identity was smoothed out and sort of stabilized, no longer in danger of breaking apart into its constituent groups, you know, you're not going to have, you know, street riots between English and Irish, you know, gangs or anything like that. As soon as that was more or less stabilized the white population of the U.S. within one generation starts taking a hard look at how it had been treating African Americans and began making reforms. A generation after that, it's our present day, we look out the window and we see things coming apart, and, and they seem to be regressing. Well, as the white American population is now starting to feel anxious about its approaching minority status in the U.S., as well as you know, being the group that feels the brunt of the damage of the collapse of the middle class because they were 
disproportionately clustered there. Look at what we see. Again, like clockwork, we see the alt-right and other white identitarian groups and other far-right groups popping up and asserting themselves, demonizing and creating conflict with other groups, again, consciously or unconsciously, but as a means of reminding people of the boundaries of collective identities. People who feel threatened bind together if they can find a common basis on which to do it. Both great leaders and vulgar demagogues are people who can articulate that common basis. The French scholar René Girard, he developed a theory of sacrifice in myth and ritual that was partly built around the dynamic I'm talking about here. He believed that sacrificial myths were a smooth finish applied over cultural memories of grotesque acts of community violence. In one of his books, he conveys a third-century pagan myth that he calls the terrible miracle of Apollonius of Tyana that illustrates this principle pretty well. Now, Apollonius was a pagan holy man of the Greco-Roman world in the second century after Christ. His mythological corpus is very interesting because it bears many resemblances to stories with which most of us are familiar from the life of Jesus, only they come with a, a sharp pagan edge that hadn't yet been blunted by Christianity. So first of all, I'm going to quote the story itself, as recorded by Philostratus in the 3rd century. Um, as the narrative opens up, we're in the city of Ephesus, and it's disintegrating, coming apart due to a plague. Uh, the desperate Ephesians have tried several remedies, all of them failing, and so finally they turn to Apollonius, the holy man, for help. Quote, Take courage, for I will today put a stop to the course of the disease. And with these words he led the population entire to the theater, and there he saw what seemed an old mendicant artfully blinking his eyes as if blind, and he carried a wallet and a crust of bread in it. And he was clad in rags and was very squalid of countenance. Apollonius therefore ranged the Ephesians around him and said, Pick up as many stones as you can and hurl them at this enemy of the gods. Now the Ephesians wondered what he meant and were shocked at the idea of murdering a stranger so manifestly miserable, for he was begging and praying them to take mercy upon him. Nevertheless, Apollonius insisted, and egged on the Ephesians to launch themselves on him and not let him go. And as soon as some of them began to take shots and hit, hit him with their stones, the beggar, who had seemed to blink and be blind, gave them all a sudden glance and showed that his eyes were full of fire. Then the Ephesians recognized that he was a demon, and they stoned him so thoroughly that their stones were heaped into a great cairn around him. After a little pause, Apollonius bade them remove the stones and acquaint themselves with the wild animal which they had slain. When, therefore, they had exposed the object which they thought they had thrown their missiles at, they found that he had disappeared, and instead of him there was a hound who resembled in form and look a Molossian dog, but was in size the equal of the largest lion. There he lay before their eyes, pounded to a pulp by their stones, and vomiting foam as mad dogs do. Accordingly, the statue of the averting god, namely Hercules, has been set up over the spot where the ghost was slain, and the disease was cured. End quote. Now we know the story of the crucifixion of Jesus from the perspective of his followers, right? René Girard would say that this is the same story just from the standpoint of the killers. And when we think of human sacrifice, most of us probably think of solemn ceremonies overseen by hooded figures in a moonlit grove or 
you know, Aztecs costumed as avatars of their gods, mounting a great pyramid to offer hearts and blood to the sun. But when you go through the literature, one of the first things that really strikes you is how much of human sacrifice is all but indistinguishable to modern people from just simple psychotic murder. As we'll see, some gods prefer altars, but many others are just as happy to see the blood run into the gutter. But first, back to the miracle of Apollonius. Um, I think if we're going to call the crucifixion a sacrifice, then the killing of the mendicant by Apollonius' mob must be recognized as the same kind of event, only told by the sacrificers. A defenseless person is set upon by a violent mob after a religious authority targets him as a source of evil threatening the community. But why would so many of these stories give the lesson that the murder, indeed, actually did restore the community or bring it some kind of a blessing? Because there are stories like this all over the world. Well, Gerard says that that part is added to the story later as the effects on the community and the individual participants in the murder begin to seep in. Gerard thought that when dissension in a community builds up, threatening to engulf everyone in a cycle of violence and reprisal, tearing apart the delicate social life of the community. One way that they restore harmony is by focusing all of their antipathy and rage on a single victim or on a set of victims who lack the means to retaliate. It's a sort of three-step process in which the individuals in a community are starting to get a little froggy and they say to each other, I'm going to kill you. Step one, I'm going to kill you. Please don't kill me. Let's all kill him. And it very often works like a charm. The discharge of violent energy, the reaffirmation of community identity by reestablishing the polarity with a true other, the sense of being in this together that the community members feel as mutually culpable murderers, the sense of empowerment they feel with the realization that even the criminalization of murder is just a convention that can be suspended by community affirmation. The new feeling of trust and fellowship now that, at least for a period of time, all the hatred and antipathy that had been bouncing around the community itself has been directed outward onto a collective target. The security of basking in the authority and power of a man who just exhibited the power to command an entire reluctant community to kill. Now, of course, none of this would actually cure a plague, but plague in stories like this, you know, it's often just a stand-in for instability. You know, it's a threatening force consuming the community. In other stories, it might be a famine, a drought, a monster, you know, civil strife, or, I don't know, a threat, a looming threat from the gods signified by bad omens, whatever. The bottom line is that you have a community on the verge of coming apart that holds itself together by designating a collective victim. We see versions of this again and again, even into the modern world. Many of them we're very familiar with. After the eh, liberating or degenerating years of Weimar Germany, uh, depending on your perspective, certainly the unstable years of Weimar Germany, the German nation reconstituted itself and restored internal political harmony by designating a collective target in the Jew. And then, once they were united and could, could act collectively again, they became an outward-looking military force that it took the whole Western world to overcome. It's probably not a coincidence. Germany and Italy, the 
two fascist powers of the Western Axis Alliance, they were also two of the youngest nations in Europe. Germany was only born in 1871. And so just 40 years later, basically, four decades later, the defeat in the First World War and the subsequent Weimar dissolution seemed, you know, to, to, to many Germans, it seemed to be the undoing of a social project that was still in its infancy and had never really congealed. The resort to fascism and the designation of a sacrificial victim restored harmony within the German national community. There's no doubt about it. You know, they just happened to lose a war of annihilation to outside powers, but you can totally imagine if it had happened in an earlier time when Germany wasn't surrounded by opposing powers and simply went through that whole process in isolation, that we may have eventually discovered that society telling stories about how sometime back in the past their community had suffered from a series of disasters which were only purged from the social body when a great man identified the source of their trouble and incited the German people to get rid of them. Italy, too. Italy was a very young nation. It was only politically united in 1861. And even today, there are movements to break the country up into north and south. Spain's another example. Spain was under a fascist like government until 1978 and even to this day there are regional and ethnic separatist movements in Spain I think Catalan's about to have a, a vote on secession the lesson is that communities threatened with dissolution very often resort to authoritarian or totalitarian rulers who bring with them a designated enemy to justify their power against which the society can direct hatred and rage that might otherwise spill into the fissures threatening to break them apart an old Arab saying has it that a thousand years of tyranny is preferable to a single day of anarchy. And you'll notice if you look around that anarchist movements are always populated and run by spoiled rich kids from the dominant class of whichever society they're operating in. You don't have anarchist movements in places that have actually experienced anarchy recently. People who manage to emerge from the chaos of civil war, almost invariably deify the leader who pulled them out of it, and they experience the establishment of a new social order as a kind of salvation. You know, kings are both oppressors and deliverers. They're executioners and saviors. Divinely empowered beings who, with a word, could speak anything from a war to a monument to an execution or reprieve into existence. I'm going to quote another relevant passage from Clenenden's book, uh, this time on the ceremonies surrounding the inauguration of the new Aztec Tlatuani, which means the great speaker. Tlatuani is the Mexica word for king, basically. Quote, The rituals were set in motion when on the old ruler's death, his inner council, drawn from the adult male members of the ruling lineage, and so including all the likeliest contenders for the highest office, selected one of their number as ruler in the Tenochtitlan case usually showing a preference for the lord who held the office of war commander, and chose his ruling council of four. How bitterly these selections were contested, and at what point in time they were arranged, we cannot know. As with the selection of a pope, these deliberations were secret. Given that it is the public assertions, and so the public awareness about the nature and bases of political authority which concern us, the analysis of the public processes of the ruler-elect's transformation into Tlatawani should display in slow-motion sequence the various sources of his claimed authority. In a formal display of unreadiness, and perhaps in enactment of the coercion of the divine selection, the ruler-elect was grasped by the, by the great priest to be brought before an assembly of leading lords and warriors, 
There he was stripped, dressed in penitential garb, and taken to the great pyramid in the shrine of Huitzilopochtli, where, faces veiled by the fasting capes of the penitential state, he and his four advisors offered incense and were displayed before the assembled people and the Mexica deity. Then he and his council retired for four days of fasting, in Mexica terms, one meager meal a day, prolonged vigil and ritual bathing, and much penitential bloodletting. It is not clear whether the requirements placed on the ruler-elect were more stringent than on those of his counselors. Only after that period of strengthening and purification was the new ruler permitted to enter his palace. There he was subjected to a sequence of discourses on his duties, very much in the custodian of the people and guardian of the traditions mode, by senior lords and priests. He responded with proper humility, and then addressed an exhortation to the assembled people. Shortly after these ceremonies, he would go to war to collect an adequate number of captives for his public installation, a glorious affair of grand-scale killings of captives and gift exchanges with enemy as well as friendlier subject rulers. The killings had to be numerous because they were a statement of the power of the Mexica war god and of the new ruler's capacity to serve him. That message was of high relevance to those within and without the city. The ruler's submission to the instruction offered by lords and elders and his own address to his people established him as the superior earthly repository of accumulated traditional wisdom, much of the rhetoric on rulership being thick with metaphors of the ruler as father, custodian, and guide to his people. The head to the commoner's wings and tail of the great bird of state, the spreading tree giving protect protection and shade to lesser men, and, even more insistently, the parent tenderly bearing the burden of his children in his arms." End quote. The father of the people, the custodian of the city, the war leader, the guardian of the traditions. In early complex societies, transitioning into something like an archaic civilization, the king is always divine in one way or another. And he's effective insofar as the divine will is embodied in his acts. But the will of the gods moves without regard for the desires of man. The Aztecs were very aware of this, perhaps more so than any people of similar achievement, I think. Ruined cities dotted the landscape surrounding the capital like festering sores. Just a few miles away stood the abandoned, overgrown ruins of Teotihuacan, a city that was more populous, larger, and with a more magnificent period than the Aztec capital all the way back in 650 A.D., so a city greater than the capital of the ruling empire, built by beings unknown to the Aztecs or to any of the people around them, and yet even Teotihuacan had been reduced and abandoned to nature. From Hugh Thomas's great book on the conquest, quote, Despite the grandeur of the wonderful city, its near-universal education, the remarkable attitudes to law, the poetry, the military successes, the artistic achievements, and the brilliant festivals, there were certain anxieties in Tenochtitlan. These came not, of course, from the absence of the wheel, of the arch, of metal tools, of domestic animals for traction, nor even proper writing. Nor was there any difficulty caused because men had sandals and women went barefoot. Perhaps the festivals had begun, in several ways, to sacrifice too many people, or even to rely excessively on the divine mushroom. If so, these were not matters for despair. The first concern derived from the fact that the Mexica had constructed their history on a myth of eventual cataclysm. This myth, as has been seen, suggested that the world had already been through four eras, lit by four separate suns, 
the existing time, that of the fifth sun, would, everyone knew, one day come to an end. The general acceptance of that legend, comparable to the Norse fear of the terrible day when Odin would meet the wolf, was one reason for pessimism among the Mexica upper class, despite their wealth, luxurious life, success, and power. Though the Mexica certainly were dominated by a cyclical calendar, their universe did not seem static. On the contrary, it was dynamic. Divine content might be followed by divine calamity. The Mexica and the people in their dependent polities lived, too, with the memory of the ruin of past cities. In particularly, they lived, as we have seen, in the shadow of Tolan. The people of that civilization, the Toltecs, immaculate in their blue sandals though they had seemed, had been overthrown. Even their gods had been dispersed. If such superior people could be ruined, what hope of immortality could there be for the Mexica? Nor was Talon the only great place to have vanished. The Mexica knew nothing of the glories of the Mayas in Yucatan in the 5th and 6th centuries. Palenque and Tikal were as unknown to them as they were to the Europeans. But everyone in Tenochtitlan knew that ten miles from the shores of the lake to the northeast there had been another city, Teotihuacan, whose mysterious pyramids, now covered in brushwood, were a byword for their size. Nobody knew nor knows what people had flourished there, nor what language they had spoken. But the name of that ruin, the word meant city of the gods, was recalled as a reminder of the ephemeral nature of greatness. There in Teotihuacan was a frequently used phrase indicating the past. Remarkable for its mural paintings, its fall had been more complete, perhaps more sudden than that of Talon. It had been, in truth, far grander than Talon, if the remains to be seen at Tula indicate anything. Its eclipse had affected those who came after it as if it had been the fall of Rome. The comparison is not extravagant. Teotihuacan, at its height, probably had a population larger than Tenochtitlan's. Its size, sculpture, painting, architecture, its special districts reserved for diverse crafts made it, at the time of its collapse in A.D. 650, without an equivalent in the entire world save China. There was thus a concern among the Mexica with the possibility of catastrophe. End quote. And now I want to read you a story, a section from probably my favorite work of post-war American fiction. It's a toss-up with another one I'll read from later, maybe a few others. Anyway, uh, this one's called Blood Meridian, written by Cormac McCarthy. If you've seen the movie No Country for Old Men, he wrote the book on which that movie was based, and Blood Meridian is kind of universally recognized as his best book. For anybody who's not familiar with it, it's a novel based loosely around real events in northern Mexico and the southwestern United States in the period after the Spanish-American War, when Mexican governors were paying bands of independent mercenaries, basically, to go around and just kill as many Native Americans as they could and to bring back their scalps for, for gold. So the story follows this infamous group of filibusters known as the Glanton Gang as they take various contracts and just create murderous pandemonium as they tear through the Southwest. The gang's named after its commander, John Glanton, but the sort of spiritual leader and center of the group is Judge Holden, just called the Judge a lot. And he's probably, I mean, he's one of the great villains in all literature. The Judge is a prophet of war. He's the spirit of violence. He seems to speak all languages and have a foot in every sphere of knowledge. He's a very mysterious figure. Um, 
And so the passage that I'm going to read opens up as the as the gang is passing through Chaco Canyon, looking out upon the ancient cliffside stone dwellings of the Anasazi. The Anasazi were an unknown native people who had built these magnificent structures into the cliffs, but which had long since departed or gone extinct. We, we don't know who they were or what happened to them. And uh, at the time that the gang is riding through these canyons, the current residents of these spectacular Anasazi ruins had no idea who built them. They, they moved into them long after they were built, and they were at a level of development that could in no way hope to build or even repair these things them, themselves. And so they, they huddled in, in these ruins with the same spirit of awed terror that Europeans in the Dark Ages looked upon Roman architecture, or that the Aztecs looked upon the ruins of Teotihuacan, knowing their own smallness and insignificance by comparison and wondering when their number would finally come up. So I'll start here, quote, That night they camped in the ruins of an older culture deep in the stone mountains, a small valley with a clear run of water and good grass. Dwellings of mud and stone were walled up beneath an overhanging cliff, and the valley was traced with the work of old Asekias. The loose sand in the valley floor was strewn everywhere with pieces of pottery and blackened bits of wood, and it was crossed and recrossed with the tracks of deer and other animals. The judge walked the ruins at dusk, the old rooms still black with wood smoke, old flints and broken pottery among the ashes and small dry corn cobs. A few rotting wooden ladders yet leaned against the dwelling walls. He roamed through the ruinous kivas picking up small artifacts, and he sat upon a high wall and sketched in his book until the light failed. The moon rose full over the canyon, and there was stark silence. It may be that it was their own shadows kept the coyotes from abroad, for there was no sound of them, or wind, or bird in that place, but only the light rill of water running over the sand in the dark below their fires. The judge all day had made forays among the rocks of the gorge through which they'd passed, and now at the fire he spread part of a wagon sheet on the ground and was sorting out his finds and arranging them before him. In his lap he held the leather ledger book, and he took up each piece, flint or potsherd or tool of bone, and deftly sketched it into his book. He sketched with a practiced ease, and there was no wrinkling of that bald brow or pursing of those oddly childish lips. His fingers traced the impression of old willow wicker on a piece of pottery clay, and he put this into his book with nice shadings and economy of pencil strokes. He is a draftsman as he is other things, well sufficient to the task. He looks up from time to time at the fire, or at his companions in arms, or at the night beyond. Lastly, he set before him the footpiece from a suit of armor hammered out in a shop in Toledo three centuries before, a small steel tapadero, frail and shelled with rot. This the judge sketched in profile and in perspective, citing the dimensions in his neat script, making marginal notes. Glanton watched him. When he had done... He took up the little foot guard and turned it in his hand and studied it again, and then he crushed it into a ball of foil and pitched it into the fire. He gathered up the other artifacts and cast them also into the fire, and he shook out the wagon sheet and folded it away among his possibles together with the notebook. Then he sat with his hands cupped in his lap, and he seemed much satisfied with the world, as if his counsel had been sought at its creation. A Tennessean named Webster had been watching him, and he asked the judge what he aimed to do with those notes and sketches, and the judge smiled and said that it was his intention to expunge them from the memory of man. 
Webster smiled and the judge laughed. Webster regarded him with one eye squint and he said, Well, you've been a draftsman somewheres and them pictures is like enough to the things themselves. But no man can put all the world in a book. No more than everything drawed in a book is so. Well said, Marcus, spoke the judge. But don't draw me, said Webster, for I don't want in your book. My book or some other book, said the judge. What is to be deviates no jot from the book wherein it's writ. How could it? It would be a false book, and a false book is no book at all. You're a formidable riddler, and I'll not match words with ye. Only save my crusted mug from out your ledger there, for I'd not have it shown about, perhaps, to strangers. The judge smiled. Whether in my book or not, every man is tabernacled in every other, and he in exchange, and so on in an endless complexity of being, and witness to the uttermost edge of the world. I'll stand for my own witness, said Webster, but by now the others had begun to call him on his conceit. And... Who would want to see his bloody portrait anyway, and would there be fights breaking out in the, as the great crowds awaiting its unveiling, and perhaps they could tar and feather the picture lacking the article himself? Until finally the judge raised his hand and called for amnesty, and told them that Webster's feelings were of a different kind and not motivated by vanity at all, and that he'd once drawn an old Waco Indian's portrait and unwittingly chained the man to his own likeness. For the man could not sleep for fear that an enemy might take it and deface it, and so like was the portrait that he would not suffer it crease, nor anything to touch it, and he made a journey across the desert with it to where he'd heard the judge was to be found, and he begged his counsel as to how he might preserve the thing, and the judge took him deep into the mountains, and they buried the portrait in the floor of a cave where it lies yet, for aught the judge knew. When he was done telling this, Webster spat and wiped his mouth and eyed the judge again. That man, he said, was no more than an ignorant heathen savage. That's so, said the judge. It ain't like that with me, said Webster. Excellent, said the judge, reaching for his portmanteau. You've no objection to a sketch, then. I'll sit for no portrait, said Webster, but it ain't like you said. The company fell silent. Someone rose to stoke the fire, and the moon ascended and grew small over the ruined dwellings, and the little stream braided over the sands and the valley floor, shone like woven metal, and save for the sound it made, there was no sound other. What kind of Indians is, has these here been, Judge? The judge looked up. Dead ones, I'd say. What about you, Judge? Not so dead, says the judge. They was passable masons, I'd say that. Oh, okay. So, uh, this book is written in the language of the Old West, and so you're just going to have to forgive some of the language here as I go through. He's trying to be authentic. Not so dead, says the judge. They was passable masons, I'd say that. These niggers hereabouts ain't no kind. Not so dead, said the judge. Then he told them another story, and it was this story. In the western country of the Alleghenies some years ago, when it was yet a wilderness, there was a man who kept a harness shop by the side of the Federal Road. He did so because it was his trade, and yet he did little of it, for there were few travelers in that place. So that he fell into the habit before long of dressing himself as an Indian, and taking up station a few miles above his shop and waiting there by the roadside to ask whoever should come that way if they would give him money. At this time the man had done no person any injury. One day a certain man came by, and the harness maker and his beads and feathers stepped from behind his tree and asked this certain man for some coins. 
He was a young man, and he refused, and having recognized the harness maker for a white man, spoke to him in a way that made the harness maker ashamed, so that he invited the young man to come to his dwelling a few miles distant on the road. The harness maker lived in a bark house he had built, and he kept a wife and two children, all of whom reckoned the old man mad, and were only waiting some chance to escape him and the wild place he'd brought them to. They therefore welcomed the guest, and the woman gave him his supper, but while he ate, the old man again began to try to wheedle money from him, and he said that they were poor, as indeed they were, and the traveler listened to him and then took out two coins, which, like the old man, had never seen. And the old man took the coins and studied them and showed them to his son, and the stranger finished his meal and said to the old man that he might have those coins. But ingratitude is more common than you might think, and the harness-maker wasn't satisfied. And he began to question whether he ought not, perhaps, to have another such coin for his wife. The traveler pushed back his plate and turned in his chair and gave the old man a lecture. And in this lecture the old man heard things he had once known but forgotten, and he heard some new things to go with them. The traveler concluded by telling the old man that he was a loss to God and man alike, and would remain so until he took his brother into his heart as he would take himself in, and he come upon his own person and want in some desert place in the world. Now, as he was concluding this speech, there passed in the road a nigger drawing a funeral hearse for one of his own kind, and it was painted pink, and the nigger was dressed in clothes of every color like a carnival clown, and the young man pointed out this nigger passing in the road, and he said that even a black nigger... Here the judge paused. He had been looking into the fire, and he raised his head and looked around him. His narration was much in the manner of a recital. He had not lost the thread of his tale. He smiled at the listeners about. The young man said that even a crazy black nigger was not less than a man among men. And then the old man's son stood up and began an oration himself, pointing out at the road and calling for a place to be made for the nigger. He used those words, that a place be made. Of course, by this time the nigger and hearse had passed on from sight. With this, the old man repented all over again and swore that the boy was right, and the old woman who was seated by the fire was amazed at all she had heard, and when the guest announced that the time had come for departure, she had tears in her eyes, and the little girl came out from behind the bed and clung to his clothes. The old man offered to walk him out to the road, so as to see him off on his journey, and to apprise him of which fork in the road to take, and which not, for there were scarcely any way signs in that part of the world. As they walked out, they spoke of life in such a wild place, where such people as you saw, you saw but once, and never again. And by and by they came to the fork in the road, and here the traveler told the old man that he had come with him far enough, and he thanked him, and they took their departure of each other, and the stranger went on his way. But the harness-maker seemed unable to suffer the loss of his company, and he called to him, and went with him again a little way upon the road. And by and by they came to a place where the road was darkened in a deep wood, and in this place the old man killed the traveler. He killed him with a rock, and he took his clothes, and he took his watch and his money, and he buried him in a shallow grave by the side of the road. Then he went home. On the way he tore his own clothes and bloodied himself with a flint, and he told his wife they had been set upon by robbers and the young traveler murdered, and him only escaped. She began to cry, and after a while she made him take her to the place, and she took wild primrose which grew in plenty thereabout and she put it on the stones 
and she came there many times until she was old. The harness maker lived until his son was grown and never did, did anyone harm again. As he lay dying, he called to the son and told him what he had done, and the son said that he forgave him if it was his to do, and the old man said that it was his to do, and then he died. But the boy was not sorry, for he was jealous of the dead man, and before he went away he visited that place and cast away the rocks and dug up the bones and scattered them in the forest, and then he went away. He went away to the west, and he himself became a killer of men. The old woman was still living at the time, and she knew none of what had passed, and she thought that wild animals had dug up the bones and scattered them. Perhaps she did not find all the bones, but such as she did find she restored to the grave, and she covered them up and piled the stones over them and carried flowers to that place as before. When she was an old woman, she told people that it was her son buried there, and perhaps by that time it was even so. Here the judge looked up and smiled. There was a silence, then all began to shout at once with every kind of disclaimer. He was no harness maker, he was a shoemaker, and he was clear to them charges, called one. And another, he never lived in no wilderness place, he had a shop dead in the center of Cumberland, Maryland. They never knew where them bones come from, the old woman was crazy, known to be so. That was my brother in that casket, and he was a minstrel dancer out of Cincinnati, Ohio, was shot to death over a woman and other protests, until the judge raised both hands for silence. Wait now, he said, for there's a rider to the tale. There was a young bride waiting for that traveler, with whose bones we are acquainted, and she bore a child in her womb that was the traveler's son. Now this son, whose father's existence in this world is historical and speculative, even before the son has entered it, is in a bad way. All his life he carries before him the idol of a perfection to which he can never attain. The father dead has euchred the son out of his patrimony, for it is the death of the father to which the son is entitled, and to which he is heir more so than his goods. He will not hear of the small mean ways that tempered the man in life. He will not see him struggling in follies of his own devising. No, the world which he inherits bears him false witness. He is broken before a frozen god, and he will never find his way. What is true of one man, said the judge, is true of many. The people who once lived here are called the Anasazi, the old ones. They quit these parts, routed by drought or disease, or by wandering bands of marauders, quit these parts ages since, and of them there is no memory. They are rumors and ghosts in this land, and they are much revered. The tools, the art, the building, these things stand in judgment of the latter races. Yet there is nothing for them to grapple with. The old ones are gone like phantoms, and the savages wander these canyons to the sound of ancient laughter. In their crude huts, they crouch in darkness and listen to the fear seeping out of the rock. All progressions from a higher to a lower order are marked by ruins and mystery and a residue of nameless rage. So, here are the dead fathers. Their spirit is entombed in the stone. It lies upon the land with the same weight and the same ubiquity. For whoever makes a shelter of reeds and hides has joined his spirit to the common destiny of creatures, and he will subside back into the primal mud with scarcely a cry. But he who builds in stone seeks to alter the structure of the universe, and so it was with these masons, however primitive their works may seem to us. None spoke. 
The judge sat half-naked and sweating, for all the night was cool. At length, the ex-priest, Tobin, looked up. It strikes me, he said, that either son is equal in the way of disadvantage. So what is the way of raising a child? At a young age, said the judge, they should be put in a pit with wild dogs. They should be set to puzzle out from their proper clues the one of three doors that does not harbor wild lions. They should be made to run naked in the desert until... Hold now, said Tobin. The question was put in all seriousness. And the answer, said the judge. If God meant to interfere in the degeneracy of mankind, would he not have done so by now? Wolves call themselves man. What other creature could? And is the race of man not more predacious yet? The way of the world is to bloom and to flower and die, but in the affairs of men there is no waning, and the noon of his expression signals the onset of night. His spirit is exhausted at the peak of its achievement. His meridian is at once his darkening and the evening of his day. He loves games? Let him play for stakes. This you see here, these ruins wondered at by tribes of savages, do you not think that this will be again? Aye and again, and again, with other people, with other sons. The judge looked about him. He was sat before the fire naked save for his breeches, and his hands rested palm down upon his knees. His eyes were empty slots. None among the company harbored any notion as to what this attitude implied, yet so like an icon was he sitting that they grew cautious and spoke with circumspection among themselves, as if they would not waken something that had better be left sleeping. It's a great book. The point here is that, well, there's a lot going on in that passage, but it's the birthright of a son to see his father slow down and weaken and fail and die. Experiences may vary, of course, but it can be one of the greatest catastrophes that a child can suffer, the son specifically, to have his father pass away before he ever has a chance to know him. Pass in a noble way, I mean. People sanctify and make heroes of the dead. Nostalgia amplifies their blessings, and good taste and fading memories wash away their sins. You know, I wouldn't want to be the infant son of a posthumous Medal of Honor winner. For example, ambivalent all my life about a great man that I never knew, whose whose image both inspires and shames me. See, the Aztecs were known by everyone to be pretenders. They knew this most of all themselves. They had descended as tough but uncouth nomads onto a long-established civilization. When they embarked upon the course of empire in the 15th century... They ordered burned whole libraries of cultural history, writing themselves in as the rightful descendants of Talon, the great ruined city of the mysterious Toltecs. Their great achievements in war, architecture, and ceremony were tinged with a sense of hubris, with ancient guilt over their inadequacy and presumption. Their version of the shared Mesoamerican cultural story rested only on their ability to enforce it violently, and they and everyone else knew it. A century before the Spanish arrived, they had been tributaries to another city, providing a few meager vegetables and manufactured goods to their masters as tribute, 
and now they were receiving gold, gems, exotic foods and animals, bales of quetzal feathers, everything that was most valuable to the Mesoamericans, as much as they could manage. And they poured their newfound riches into building up their city into something worthy of the heirs of Talon, like insecure sons working madly under the judgmental gaze of an unreachable father. Soon after the Mexica began to expand their empire in the mid-15th century, the Valley of Mexico was hit by a series of natural disasters that amplified their sense of having presumptuously defied the gods by asserting themselves as they did. You know, it's not an uncommon feeling in individuals or societies. The, the Tower of Babel story is included right at the beginning of the Bible, and it's, a, it's an object lesson in what happens to people who arrogantly seek to challenge the heavens through human achievement. Who do you think you are, and who do you think you're fooling? Those are the refrains ringing in the ears of the guilty sons. And they rang in the ears of the Aztecs. To a people like them, with, with such an amplified sense of hubris and pretension, building their civilization by huddling together, nervously loquacious at the edge of the abyss, in the great phrase of Kenneth Burke, Nature to them was replete with signs and omens pretending misfortune. In contrast to nomadic hunter-gatherers, men who settle down to build and plant begin to experience the natural world very differently, as a realm of chaos and terror. You know, nomads follow the rhythmic provision of nature. If there's not enough food over here, we'll move over there. And the immediate return economy means that they use what they get when they get it, so they worry about tomorrow's needs tomorrow. And again, this isn't a choice. With, with no way to store food long term and no way to carry around accumulated resources, their focus is just much more on the immediate compared to the much longer time horizon required of people who plant crops to make their living. Now, the nomadic way of life, as we've talked about it, not only precludes economic inequality and stratified power hierarchies, but you know, it also engenders a level of trust in the environment because, you know, it's just it's the way that they have to approach it. And that level of trust is absolutely absent in settled societies, especially in agricultural societies where a living a living has got to be, you know, tortured or coaxed from a specific piece of real estate, come what may. My Aztec scholar Inga Clenenden writes, quote, John Berger has written a few remarkable passages in which he contrasts the experiences and perceptions of peasant life with its naked exposure to unsought change with the lives of modern or indeed any urbanites insulated as he presents them to be against the flux of days and seasons and the terrible randomness of fate. He writes of peasants' obdurate reliance on the wisdom of those who had gone before, following a narrow path of precept and example beaten out by generations of feet a path which threads its way through known dangers, with the walkers ever watchful for the unknown. He explains their devout attachment to routine as their son, excuse me, as their response to the furious uncertainty of lives exposed to the vagaries of nature and the exactions of overlords. The Mexica, or most of them, lived in abundance most of the time, yet they represented themselves as living on a razor's edge, or, as they put it, toiling along a windswept ridge, an abyss on either hand. Throughout Mesoamerica there was a general notion of man's tenuous place in the natural order, a recognition of the intimate interdependence of men and maize, and the problematical relationship of each with the givers of rain and growth." Quote. 
People who give up nomadism and become sedentary almost always have, especially in the early days, a sense of being in profound danger, of being out on their own. Anxiety becomes a way of life. An agriculturalist, remember, needs a particular piece of land to provide consistently every year. And not only that, but it has to provide enough during the growing season to get him through the winter to the next growing season. And it has to do this consistently every year. And if it ever fails to do that, everything that we've built on top of it could collapse catastrophically. Nomads are at the mercy of nature in the sense that they follow where it leads them, but settled peoples are at its mercy in a whole different way. They have to just sit there and hope that it rains, hope that their crops don't fail, hope that winter doesn't come early and and frost everything. They just have to sit there and hope, but human beings cannot live on hope. We're not built for that. We need to at least give ourselves the illusion that there's something we can do to control our fate. And if there really isn't anything we can do, really, we will make something up. No problem. No problem. This desire to control the environment is almost completely absent from hunter-gatherer societies. They just move. They don't need to control the environment. By the time we reach early civilizations, archaic civilizations like Mesopotamia, Egypt, and so forth, one of the most striking similarities between all the early civilizations is the emergence of an awareness of the movements of the heavenly bodies against the backdrop of the fixed stars. In every archaic civilization, there's a priesthood dedicated to tracking the movements of the night sky, and there are tales usually of traumatic catastrophes in the past when for one reason or another the priests lose track of everything, and you can imagine why. You know, imagine trying to predict the time for planting or harvesting or when frost begins to set in or when the rains are going to come or when the Nile is going to flood the plain for people who are just beginning to figure this stuff out. Planting a month late one year might lead to the collapse of your civilization. And so every archaic civilization has got a priesthood set off to the side and dedicated to making sure that that doesn't happen. But the archaic civilizations, studying the regular movements of the night sky, they finally arrive at this understanding that there's some kind of impersonal, mechanical order to the universe. They still have gods and all that, but you know they're starting to see that there's something moving like clockwork. Complex societies that have not quite reached that stage haven't quite pinned that down yet. They still understand natural forces in personal terms. That is, in terms of a will driving events and bringing joy or catastrophe. Something out there that can be bargained with or appeased or controlled, rather than simply understood and worked with. They were busy at work mapping out their earthly territory. Most of the complex societies, and and complex societies, by the way, I think I've used that term a few times without defining it. I'm just using it to represent settled agricultural societies with with an emergent state that we would not classify yet as archaic civilizations. So, you know, you don't jump from being the Kung Bushmen or the Australian Aborigines to building pyramids like the Egyptians in, in one step, there's a, there's a transition between that where kinship and state institutions are grappling with one another and they're, making, they're trying to cross that bridge and I'm calling that a complex society. So complex societies haven't quite pinned down the idea of a mechanical universe. Um, they, 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 they are trying to map out their earthly territory, 
Uh, most of the complex societies that I've come across are obsessed with things like measuring and counting. Um, you find it all over the place. It's fascinating. When Captain Cook first made his visits to the Pacific Islands, for example, almost everywhere, the natives immediately insisted on coming out and measuring his ship's length and width. Sometimes they would use cords. Other times they would get a whole bunch of them and join hands to see how many people wide it was. They, they wanted to measure the ships. It was one of the first things that they all wanted to do. Um, when uh, British explorers first made their way into the African kingdoms of Buganda and Bunyoro around Lake Victoria, missionaries talked about how one of the first things, or the first thing that natives would always do upon receiving a book, before they would read anything, even the literate ones who had been trained to read, the first thing they would do is count the number of pages. Just always. It was the first thing they did. Um, so there's a progression of territorial mapping in a way. Hunter-gatherers, even the most savage, primitive hunter-gatherers, have a deep vocabulary and, and deep understanding of the natural world that pertains to them. Uh, you know, Many tribes, even children that are four or five years old, can name hundreds of plant and animal species. They can identify which ones are good for food and so on, even little kids. In settled, complex societies, this mapping has kind of expanded its scope a little bit into symbolic representations of the social order of measuring the environment in terms of number and distance and things like that, and of beginning to identify some regularity in the environment, which is often represented in ritual or encouraged through sympathetic magic. And then, by the time we arrive at archaic civilization, there is a recognition of an impersonal order, which is not an expression of the will of some god, but of which the gods are mere functionaries, say. All this, I think, is a, it's a progressive means of taking psychological possession of the environment, of expanding the realm of mapped-out territory. But, again, this was a very, very unreliable enterprise in the Valley of Mexico, and I think it affected the development of Aztec civilization. The Valley of Mexico, the environment was so unpredictable in so many different ways that it was very difficult to nail it down with any precision. Tenochtitlan itself was situated in the middle of a lake and catastrophic floods were very common, not uncommon at least. The city itself was built on swampland and large buildings and their pyramids had to be constructed atop columns of these massive pylons that they drove deep down into the swamp. because And they, then they would build on top of these pylons because otherwise their buildings would list and sink into the ground. When floods weren't a threat, drought often came and took its place. The, the whole valley is surrounded by active volcanoes, and so there were frequent earthquakes. There's also evidence that a hemorrhagic fever native to the area reared its head from time to time and devastated the people when periods of long drought were followed by relieving periods of heavy rain. So it's almost as if the rain god slipped a nasty little you know, prank into his gift. You're celebrating the drought ending, and boom, you get hit with a plague. During the disastrous famines of the mid-15th century, which were still within living memory of the old people when the Spanish arrived, things had gotten so bad that the Mexica ruler released all his people from their duties. He allowed them to just go out, leave the city, go on their own, and just find food for themselves and their families however and wherever they could. That's how bad things were. So in the mid-15th century, the Aztecs had experienced an almost complete collapse of their complex social order right back into meaninglessness. 
It was after that catastrophe, by the way, when they were fighting to reestablish their authority and to appease the angry gods that they built the Great Pyramid and then dedicated it with tens of thousands of human sacrifices. Eli Sagan, the psychologist uh, that I've quoted a few times, he spent most of his career trying to understand social violence. And he wrote, quote, All situations requiring the ritual slaughter of human beings are infused with unusual anxiety. The king is ill. Will our protector disappear? The king dies. Can we and the state survive? A new king is inaugurated. Will he be able to hold things together? There is famine in the land. Will we all die? War is declared. Will we win or will we we be killed? The king's palace is dedicated. Will the gods permit such an assertion by human beings? The king's ancestors are unhappy. Will they curse the land? The gods are angry. Will they eat us? Can we turn their anger to someone else? The king's son is circumcised. Will the hope of the country survive this dangerous passage? The fact that human sacrifice may be accompanied by an open display of sadistic pleasure does not signify that this is the only reason for its performance. No ritual killing is mere sadism, although sadism has a role in it. The reduction of anxiety, or, more properly, the containment of the fear of annihilation by reducing it to mere anxiety, is an essential purpose of the human sacrifice rite. End quote. The Aztecs were hyper-aware of the arbitrariness and unreliability of the universe. But, like peoples of most ages, uh, they understood the universe not in terms of impersonal forces yet, but of contesting wills. There's an old Southwest Native American tale of two farmers working in their fields. One day, the creator god of the universe is on a walk, and when he sees the farmers, uh, he he puts on a hat, which is red on one side and blue on the other, and he walks between the two fields so that one farmer sees a man in a red hat, the other farmer sees a man in a blue hat. So he gets to the end of the fields, and then he turns around and switches his hat to maintain consistency, and then he walks between the fields again, so the farmers both see the same thing they just saw. So later in the evening, the farmers are in their village, And one asked if the other had seen the man in a red hat. Nonsense, said the other, but I did see a man in a blue hat. And so they begin to argue and eventually get into a big fight. Uh, So the village comes together to settle the dispute, and the friends of each farmer take up for them, and the whole village is starting to be threatened, you know, by by this fisher. And mercifully, the god appears, laughing maniacally, explains what happened, and he finishes by saying, it was me, it was all me for spreading strife is my greatest joy. Now, this is not the devil doing this. This is the creator god of the universe for them. Uh, You know, in, in the Christian world, we tend to split the beneficial and the dangerous aspects of the unknown into two different beings, God and the devil, and proclaim the devil to be the subordinate and lesser being, both in power and moral value. The Aztecs building their city on a swamp in the middle of a volcanic valley with unpredictable rain, drought, and seasonal cycles, and building their young empire on the restless backs of people who had been in the valley far longer than they and who still kind of looked down on them as uncouth barbarians, similarly to how the Greeks viewed the Romans, sort of. The Aztecs could not afford to relate to the violence of a profoundly hostile universe as a mere secondary effect of some subordinate devil. Like many Amerindians, capriciousness, the capriciousness of the universe stood right at the center of things. 
know, it's important to remember that people from different and earlier civilizations were working very often with profoundly different cosmologies. I remember reading a while back about how there are lakes around the world today uh, that over time build up these gigantic bubbles of carbon dioxide and methane at the bottom due to volcanic vents in the lake bed. The giant bubble of poison gas stays at the bottom of the lake because the great pressure of all the water holds it down, but every so often it gets big enough or else a landslide or earthquake happens. Something happens so that the bubble rises to the surface and spills over the edges of the lake. You know, it's heavier than air, so it doesn't just go up and dissipate into the atmosphere. It actually spills over the edges and rolls along the landscape. This happened in, I think it was Cameroon back in the 1980s. And since the gas is heavier than the atmosphere, it spills over the banks and pours down this hill at 50 miles an hour, rushing through four villages and killing pretty much everybody in them, 1,700 people. Lake Kivu, by the way, on the border of Rwanda and Congo, uh, it's got the same kind of buildup going on, only the bubble is something like 350 times bigger, and Lake Kivu is surrounded by 2 million people living on its shores, so you know, hopefully somebody's working on a solution for that. But anyway, imagine how something like that might be understood by a more primitive people who have never heard of carbon dioxide or methane or gases for that matter. Think of how they would experience this. I mean, basically, a giant invisible surge of pure corruption slammed into their villages and killed everyone. Okay, I mean, did it keep going? Is it still out there? Could it come back? Is there anything we can do to prevent it from coming back? Whole cultures and religions have probably been born out of stuff like this. It's just, it's completely beyond their comp uh, comprehensive ability, but... As human beings, you know, we can't exist in a world that we can't comprehend, so we will find explanations, period, in order to give ourselves some sense that the environment is not completely chaotic and that the universe at least isn't completely capricious. Or at least that there are things that we might do, if not to control it, to at least appease it. Hugh Thomas, again from his book Conquest, he quotes from the sources on the anxious nature of the inauguration rituals. Quote, when they assumed power, the emperors of the Mexica were called upon to address their citizens in grand terms, which ritualistically anticipated the words. They asked, among other things, what will the result be when the lord of the near, of the nigh, makes the city a place of desolation? What will result when it lieth abandoned? And what will result when filth, when vice have come upon me? What will result when I have ruined the city? What will happen when I cast the common folk into the torrent, cast them from the cliff? At those same imperial inaugurations, a nobleman was called on to demand, Wilt thou fear the declarations of war? Will perhaps the city be shot with arrows? Will it be surrounded by enemies? Wilt thou fear that perhaps the city will crumble, will scatter? Perhaps there will be tremors, and the city will be abandoned. Will it be darkened? Will it perhaps become a place of desolation? And, when, and will there be enslavement? King Nezahualcoyotl of Texcoco had written many poems which breathed an air of the evanescence of human achievement. His most famous one included the injunction, Ponder this, eagle and jaguar knights. Though you are carved in jade, you will break. Though you are made of gold, you will crack. Even though you are a quetzal feather, you will wither. We are not forever on this earth. Only for a time are we here. Rulers would ritually tell their daughters, 
Difficult is the world, a place where one is caused to weep, a place where one is caused pain. Affliction is known, and the cold wind passeth, glideth by, the world is a place of thirst and hunger." End quote. And I just remembered, I have to finish the passage from Clenenden that really kind of wraps this up on the ceremony surrounding the inauguration of a new Mashika ruler. I started them earlier and I got sidetracked. So when I left off before, the perspective Klaatuani had completed a round of rituals that were really focused on his roles as the father of the people and the defender of the social order. In Europe, kings and popes were said to be the representatives of God, the loving, positive face of the universe, say, standing against the designs of the devil, you know, who was not to be appeased or bargained with, but only resisted through prayer and human action. Aztecs didn't look at it this way. Quote, but a very different theme ran in counterpoint to the father of the people emphasis. At some point in the complex process of installation, the ruler-elect spent a night in prayer and vigil before the image of Tezcatlipoca, standing naked before the god. Tezcatlipoca, unlike other Mesoamerican deities, did not represent a particular complex of natural forces, nor did he provide an emblem of tribal identity. He was the deity associated with the vagaries of this world, the here and now, as ubiquitous and ungraspable as the night wind, fickleness personified. He was also the source and repository of worldly power. Tezcatlipoca meant smoking mirror, the opaque obsidian mirror with its riddling dark reflections, or perhaps more correctly, the mirror's smoke. He was also named Moyo Koyatsin, capricious creator, and Titlacahuan, he whose slaves we are, Mokekeloa, the mocker. His hand was seen most clearly when a man rich in all good fortune, with many sons, wealth, and honors, was suddenly, gratuitously brought low. As we have seen, slaves were pampered as the beloved sons of Tezcatlipoca on his day sign, not through some last-shall-be-first inversion or notion of ultimate human equality, but because their calamitous position dramatized the pure arbitrariness of individual destiny. When Tezcatlipoca chose to appear on earth, he wrought havoc. Sometimes he heaped bounty on a casually chosen recipient. More often, much more often, he invaded men to their deaths, often choosing to use the intoxication of sacred experience as the lure. In the legendary city of Tolan, appearing in his favored guise as a young warrior, he beat his drum and intoned a song of such power that others took it from his lips and sang. Then those seduced into song began helplessly to dance. And then, when there was dancing, when there was the greatest intensity of movement, very many threw themselves from the cliffs into the canyon. They were as if besotted. And as many times as there was song and dance, so many times was there death. The laughter of Tezcatlipoca signaled destruction. Of Tezcatlipoca it was said, He only mocketh, of no one can he be a friend to no one true. One of his many sobriquets was the enemy on both sides. It was this principle of subversion, of wanton, casual, antisocial power, which was peculiarly implicated in the Mexica notions of rule, and was embodied, at least on occasion, in the Mexica ruler. In those hours of standing naked before the image of the god, the ruler's body was open to invasion by the sacred force, and the choice of the god confirmed. For most of the time, the Tlatawani functioned in the mundane world, 
his authority deriving from his exalted lineage, his conquest, and his position as the head of the social hierarchy. But that was merely a human authority, which could be displaced by Tezcatlipoca's overwhelming presence, especially when men had violated the social order and were brought before their lord. The place of royal judgment was called the slippery place, because beyond it lay total destruction. If his careful judges reflected on the niceties of their judgments, there were no judicious metaphors in the ruler's punishment, only obliterating sacred power. From the moment of the first formal address to the newly chosen ruler, the transformation in his person and in his being was recognized and acknowledged. Although thou art human, as we are, although thou art our friend, although thou art our son, our younger brother, our older brother, no more art thou human, as are we. We do not look on thee as human. Thou callest out to, thou speakest in a strange tongue to the God, the Lord of the near, of the nigh. And within thee he calleth out to thee, he is within thee, he speaketh forth from thy mouth. Thou art his lip, thou art his jaw, thou art his tongue. He is within thee. The ruler was also called the flute of Tezcatlipoca. The great speaker sometimes spoke in the voice of the god. The ambivalence of his power was well understood. Those early and anxious exhortations to benevolent behavior were necessary, for it was said when we replaced one, when we selected someone, he was already our lord, our executioner, and our enemy. Our lord, our executioner, and our enemy. A desolate cadence. The transformation was manifest. It was said he looked nowhere. It was said his eyes were shooting straight. He sat even as a god. If the Mexica ruler went into battle in the warrior garb of the Mexica deity Huitzilopochtli, he ruled as subject and vehicle of Tezcatlipoca. After his elevation, commoners could not look upon his face, and even his lords approached him without sandals and divested of their rich cloaks, in the posture of acute humility. His eating, his visits to his women were decorously concealed, and in public ceremonial he was born an icon of rulership on the shoulders of his lords, with the roads swept before him. End quote. You know, clearly the Mexica were operating with a very different set of assumptions regarding the legitimacy of rule than we are used to. Like everything in their world, the power and position of the king was suffused with ambivalence. Around the world, we find various institutions of power that elevate and check the authority of great men. The Aztec ruler was possessed by the greatest power in the universe, and yet that power's greatest joy was to see man's intentions subverted and to make a mockery of our pride. It sort of reminds me of you know, how in uh, Roman triumphs, a great general would come back after a victory and have, uh, you know, he, he would have a parade set up for him, which he would ride in his chariot, and he would be accompanied in his chariot by a slave, whispering in his ear that despite the present glory and adulation of the crowds, he was nevertheless a mere mortal destined to die. Kings around the world, isolated as they are in their position, surrounded by followers, you know, who measure their every word to him for effect, they would often keep a fool or a jester around, and, and, and the fool or jester alone would be permitted and even encouraged to operate outside the normal social order, breaking taboos, mocking the pretensions of the nobility, and, and he alone would speak freely to the king. In many parts of Europe, um, 
particularly in northern France, I think, but, but also other places, the people would sometimes engage in parodies and inversions of the Catholic Mass, uh, like at the Feast of the Asses, in which the congregation would replace its usual liturgical responses by making sounds like a donkey. You know, the priest would intone something, and the, and the, and the congregation would hee-haw! It's, there's something strange going on with something like that. You know, it's almost as if the ruling class is winking to the people. And partly admitting the arbitrary nature of the arrangement of the social hierarchy, as well as the pomp and privileges which typically demand you know, the utmost seriousness. These inversions relieve a certain pressure for the rulers in the same way that you know, someone feels better after they admit a lie. I mean, even if the truth is completely humiliating, it still feels good to clear the air of deceit. And it's also an effective ventilation for the people who are always gratified by watching the proud brought low, and who, to this day, continue to tell and retell stories like the Emperor's New Clothes. One of the clearest illustrations of the purpose of these kind of customs comes to uh, us from a version that we got in Polynesia, uh, related here again by Eli Sagan, who, again, I'll remind you, is a psychologist because it's relevant to this passage. Check these guys out. Quote, A great ambivalence produces great contradictions, and great contradictions may be expressed in symbols that simultaneously give satisfaction to both sides of the contradiction. A symbol that both exalts and degrades something at the same time is an expression of a pervasive ambivalence. Men have expressed their age-old ambivalence about women, by creating symbols that both exalt and degrade, the whore with the heart of gold, the vagina with teeth in it, the ambitious, capable woman who is too manly, the dumb blonde, the woman of intellectual power who is ugly and sexually repressed, and, of course, mom. We do the same thing about excretory control. When a person is in the bathroom, when a person in the bathroom is described as being on the throne, we refer to money, the thing we want most in the world, as filthy, and describe a person of whose wealth we're enormously jealous as filthy rich. In days gone by, the high aristocracy of Europe had chamber pots made of gold. The ancient kings of Hawaii had no medals at all, so gold chamber pots were unavailable as a symbol for them, but they exalted their bodily wastes by having a special family whose job it was to take charge of the king's excrement and carry it secretly to the sea in order that no one could obtain it and use it to render harm to the king by sorcery. Failure in this duty meant execution. This family held the position by perpetual inheritance. It never passed away from them. It was a thing of shame. Some people in Hawaii worshipped Nu, a god of excrement. Quick sidebar, uh, this is me speaking. The Aztecs also worshipped a god called uh, Tlazalteotl, usually represented as a female, and which translated as the god of filth, or the garbage god, to whom Aztec people could appeal once in their lives to cleanse them of impurity. End of sidebar. The Hawaiians had to be careful to see that fire never touched their feces. The creation of a deity may strike our repressed intellects as pushing the idea of polytheism perhaps a little too far. A way people have resolved their intense ambivalence about the exalted and degraded aspects of human life, a way that has brought humankind great misery, is to identify with what is exalted and put others in the category of the degraded. This does not really resolve the contradiction, but unfortunately it works. That is, it makes those who have seized power feel better. On the Polynesian island of Mangaya, the warrior status was the most exalted, and those killed in battle went to the highest heaven. 
a form of Valhalla. The legends are full of tales of old warriors, hardly able to walk, being led to battle in order to die there. In this soldier's heaven, one of the greatest pleasures was being able to defecate on those below, those who had attained only secondary, heavenly, uh, secondary afterlife status in heaven. And in Tahiti, the ambivalence about excretory functions, the union of exaltation and degradation, one might even say exaltation through degradation, expressed itself in the strangest rite of all. As part of the king's coronation ceremonies, when his exalted status was, was at its highest point, quoting now from Harvard ethnologist Douglas Oliver uh, in the Sagan text, the chief or king, while reclining naked on a mat near the god's image, received what was termed the populace's ultimate mark of respect. This consisted of dances and gestures of shocking filthiness, of the grossest kind of obscenity, wherein stark naked men and women surrounded the king and attempted to touch him with various parts of their bodies, even including their genitals, urine, and excrement. End quote. So, I guess my first thought there is that maybe we should try implementing our own version of that practice on our own politicians, but I don't know. I guess I look at Twitter and I see we've already got maybe a sublimated version of it, but that's a different topic. Um, so, uh, al anyway, although the fool may point out the emperor's nakedness um, or even leave his filthy mark in one way or another, he nevertheless remains a fool. And the emperor remains an emperor. And I'll send a free t-shirt to the first person who messages me that they get that reference. Not you, Richard. In his position as sovereign atop the social hierarchy, he was encouraged to... The king was encouraged to enact his will without inhibition. If the insecurity and arbitrariness of his position is expressed through ritualized knowing winks to his people or through the presence of a capricious trickster god. He also fights off any sense of weakness with sublime acts of supreme brutality. Whether personal or social, violence is always an act of self-assertion. The great Canadian scholar Marshall McLuhan put it once, violence, whether spiritual or physical, is a quest for identity. The less identity, the more violence. Violence defines boundaries. We've already kind of talked about that. In fact, a boundary might be defined as that which we are willing to use violence to defend or maintain. Boundaries of what individuals or groups consider acceptable behavior. Boundaries between self and other, us and them. Boundaries between, you know, sociopolitical groups. Commenting on a passage from the philosopher Martin Heidegger, another philosopher, Hans Sluge, pointed out that violence is, for Heidegger, man's basic trait insofar as he uses force against what is overwhelming. This is the war cry of the mass shooter as well as the suicide uh, bomber, exploding with, a, with an act of supreme self-assertion and negation to seize control of a life overwhelmed by chaos. And by chaos, you know, I, I, I mean an absence of meaning. So it can be the chaos of constant, unbearable abuse that causes people to feel like they're being crushed, but it can also just be the chaos of the wasteland described by T.S. Eliot, the empty suburban vapidity that doesn't so much cause people to feel crushed as much as that they're just dissolving or coming apart because there's nothing solid for them to hold on to. No outside pressure to pack them in and keep them in form. You know, a person who is not so inclined is always shocked to learn 
how often men respond to these kind of feelings of dissolution with violence. More than anything, men want to feel powerful, because power allows you to sustain the illusion that your world is under some measure of control and that you are safe. Hunter-gatherers lived an egalitarian life among family, while people in complex societies lived among non-kin, they were subject to political tyranny by non-kin, and the comfortable shell of the kinship system was cracking and breaking down. Probably from the Neolithic on up to Caesar, Napoleon, and Hitler, people have responded to social instability by investing their hope in the power of one man to restore it. And once you've done that, it's just a matter of momentum for people to believe that if it's better to be led by a powerful man, then a more powerful man must be better, and living under the protection of the ultimate power would be best of all. You know, the utopian vision in the Christian Bible at the end of the book of Revelation, when the new Jerusalem descends to earth, it's ruled by Jesus Christ with an iron rod in his hand, a sacred, dic sacred dictator. For people who feel threatened and insecure, there is no greater evidence of power than the power to save or take human life. You know, the difficult truth is that men typically love to bask in the glory of those who declare themselves superior and then to experience their, their power vicariously. The British writer A.M. Harrison, in his 1896 book, documenting his experiences with the Buganda, the, uh, the people around Lake Victoria that we mentioned earlier, uh, relates the following, quote, Every day there is a wanton slaughter going on of innocent victims. For a time, after we came here, we were ignorant of this. It may have been done more quietly on our account, or our ignorance of the language and people prevented our detecting it sooner. Now, at any rate, before our eyes the terrible crime lays bare. No more is it the king himself who says, Go slaughter such and such a one. Now, each executioner... We do not know how many executioners there are, but on every road diverging from the court there is at least one, has orders to capture and kill mercilessly all or any who pass on the highway. Unsuspecting peasants coming in from the country with plantains on their head are seized upon in a moment and dragged into the executioner's court, secured in fork sticks till morning, and slaughtered at dawn. It is especially men who have no friends or powerful chiefs as their protectors who are the victims. No crime have they committed nor been guilty of the most trivial offense. It is the king's pleasure that so many be butchered every day by each executioner, and the owner of the slaughter office must find his victims where he can. It is dark, about 10 p.m. All is quiet, the last drum heard being the executioners across the small valley, announcing that he had secured his victims for the day, and will spill their blood in the morning. Suddenly a sharp cry in the road outside of our fence, then mingled voices an agonizing yell again, followed by the horrid laugh of several men, and all is still as before. "'Do you hear?' says one of our local lads. "'Do you hear? They have cut the fellow's throat. <laughs> and he laughs too, the terrible Buganda grin of pleasure and cruelty. So it is." End quote. Any attempt to do something like that would have been completely impossible uh, in a, you know, among hunter-gatherers working under the kinship system. Far, far, far less serious attempts to lift oneself above others was a cardinal sin. So when we begin to see a king and his officers seizing and murdering people openly, in public, we're looking at 
a purposeful display of raw power. You know, under a kinship system, a killing like that would result in a blood feud with the victim's kin. So by murdering random people while announcing each death with beating drums, the king and his men are signaling that they're above all that. They're beyond the point of worrying about vengeance from the family or clan or tribe of the murdered man. In a way, it's, it's, it's a means of invalidating the kinship system itself. Because who, how much can it really matter if the king can just kill random people at will and everybody knows that nothing can be done about it? They kill arbitrarily, with impunity, in public, and they throw a party afterward. You know, they've transcended the system governing human relations that has existed for all time past, basically, when they do that. We mentioned earlier that the kings of advanced complex societies are usually conceived of as divine, insofar as you know, our meaning of that term can be accurately applied to these other peoples. In the medieval European Grail legends, you see this motif of the land itself and the kingdom wasting away with a sort of metaphysical corruption because the king has been wounded or, or he's fallen ill, right? In most complex societies I've been reading about, they share kind of a similar conception of the health of the king being somehow tied to the health and stability of the realm. Probably this reflects an understanding that you know, a weakened or a dying king does open the door to power disputes and civil war and all the social confusion that existed before the current power structure was solidified. But it's not spoken of that way. It's spoken of and treated as a metaphysical problem. And so think about it. You know, before the ruling family took firm control, there was chaos in the land as various parties struggled for space and power. Once they established themselves, peace reigned again. But everybody noticed over the years that a weak or distracted king always seemed to bring back the tumult that had existed before the present order. If a weak king is bad and a powerful king is good, you know, then the more powerful the king is, the better off we'll all be. To see the king exercise his tremendous power not only satisfies vicariously a sadistic impulse in the people. Remember, I mean, if that sounds crazy, remember that even just in Europe a few hundred years ago, violence was a form of public entertainment. People would watch cat burnings um, or bring their kids to public... Ex well, you never heard of cat burnings, rookie? I'm so glad I get to be the one to tell you. I'll just quote from Wikipedia on this one. Quote, Cat burning was a form of zoosadistic entertainment in France prior to the 1800s. Not that long ago. In this form of entertainment, people would gather dozens of cats in a net and hoist them high into the air from a special bundle onto a bonfire. In the medieval and early modern periods, cats, which were associated with vanity and witchcraft, were sometimes burned as symbols of the devil. Yay! So don't get, don't get too cocky. Right? It wasn't that long ago uh, that you know people of Europe were doing some pretty whack shit. So anyway, uh, being able to see the king exercise his tremendous violent power not only gave popcorn vendors a boost in sales, but it also provided the people direct evidence of his power and thus the health and stability of the kingdom. You know, this is a deep contradiction in human life that even today helps lead societies that are ideologically opposed to tyranny to nevertheless demand vulgar displays of power from their leaders. We all do this, even today. We say we don't like tyrants, and yet we demand that our, you know, our leaders give us displays of strength, ritual denunciations of enemies, and all that. From the same book that I just quoted on the Buganda, quote, 
Someone of the name Mayanja, whether a sorcerer or not we do not know yet, has advised the king that to hasten his recovery, it is necessary to slaughter people on several hills around the capital. For days, the dozen or more executioners, each with his gang of twenty or thirty men, have been laying in wait for people on the roads. Bakopi, or common people, only are caught. While sons or petty officers of chiefs, if caught by mistake, can generally purchase their release by a goat or by a cow. The other night, five were suddenly apprehended at our own gate. Two days ago, the executioner opposite went to catch men on another road, as it has been noised abroad that he was catching everyone that passeth this way. People fell into the trap, and by evening we heard that the executioner had captured forty men and thirty women. Last night we heard that he had made a similar take. Some will have their throats cut, while others will be tortured to death, their eyes put out, nose and ears cut off, the sinews of their arms and thighs cut out piecemeal and roasted before their eyes, and finally the unhappy wretches burnt alive. End quote. Many sacrificial rites contain this element of ransom. Um, for example, Sagan relates a story told by William Wilson, who he was the captain of the first ship to bring missionaries to the island of Tonga. It goes like this quote, Mumue lay critically ill. One of his sons, Kolelalo, who lived some distance off, was sent for on the pretext that he must perform the ceremony of cutting off his little fingers, an act that would appease the anger of the god Odua and cause the father's recovery. What those who were tending the father really wanted, however, was Kolelalo's life, not his fingers. Kolelalo arrived, was greeted cordially by his older brother, went in to see his father, and was seized by the father's attendants, who intended to strangle the son. Though Kolelalo struggled for his life, he was finally subdued when three men from Fiji, who were used to doing such dirty work, were called in, along with Kolelalo's sister. They slaughtered him that the father might live. End quote. So it's not, this is not uncommon. It's not uncommon that uh, such replacements are conceived in a, an attempt to almost trick the god into believing that they'd gotten what they actually came for. Pulling another example from Edgar Thurston's work in southern India, one tribe having been prohibited by the British from conducting human sacrifices, instead offered a langur monkey. And in the ritual, they would loudly and repeatedly announce its name as Erukoma Potu, or human with small breasts, in the hope of convincing the goddess that she was in fact receiving a human sacrifice. In fact, it's amazing how many animal sacrifices are accompanied by something like smearing or sprinkling blood all over the priests or the people, as it was in the ancient Hebrew rite in the Sinai Desert that we talked about. Whenever you see something like that, there might be something similar going on, with the sacrificers not so much substituting the animal in an act of sublimation. Well, that's not quite right. It is an act of sublimation, but it might, it might be a manifestation of something much more basic. Maybe if the god sees blood smeared above our doors or sees us covered in blood ourselves, he'll think we're dead and leave us alone. You know, There may be something similar going on at many levels in Aztec society. For example, the nobility would frequently dress as animals as various types. Uh, in almost all of their rituals, they would do something like that. And the priests, after making a sacrifice, would often wear the bloody skin and face of the victim and dance around. Aztec art if you look at it, almost invariably displays men in animal costumes, staring out from you know the, the gaping mouth of the jaguar or some other beast. Actually, I just thought of this. It actually reminds me of the story of Jacob and Esau in the Bible, when Jacob wanted to trick his father Isaac 
and this is a myth, so you can read the father here as a generic, potentially dangerous, overarching power, right? So Jacob wants to trick his father, Isaac, who was blind, into giving him the blessing that was rightfully meant for his brother. Jacob knows that if he's caught by his father in this lie, his father's wrath is going to be great. So he kills a goat and makes a stew of it to sate his father's hunger. And then he wears the hairy skin so that his father, his blind father, would mistake him for his hairier older brother, you know, hiding in an animal skin so that the, that the wrathful father doesn't come down on him. It also reminds me of, uh, let me see, does it? Yeah, it reminds me of Odysseus in the cave of the man-eating Cyclops in the Odyssey, right? He's in the cave of the, of the man-eating Cyclops, and he manages to blind the Cyclops by damaging its eye, but the Cyclops responds by blocking the entrance to the cave with giant stones, trapping Odysseus inside. The Cyclops only creates an opening once a day to let his sheep out to graze, and uh, as they go outside, he feels each animal as they go by to ensure that nothing but the sheep gets out. And so in the end, Odysseus makes his escape by clinging to the belly of a sheep, which dragged him outside as the Cyclops rubbed its back and felt only the familiar wool. In fact, you know what I think? I don't want to take credit for that. I think Girard actually talks about both of those examples. I'll check back on it anyway. There are lots of other examples like this from around the world, though where a man is confronted with a potentially hostile and very hungry power, and either by ransom or through deception uses an animal or another person less, of, uh, less often as cover. So Eli Sagan continues, quote, As irrational as it sounds to us, people really believe that one life could be ransomed for another, that someone or something, the gods, fate, the universe, unknown powers, would take a life hostage, but would be ready to release it provided another life was given. Within limits, one could negotiate with the power. What was not negotiable was that something terrible had to happen to someone. Who that someone was was to be su subject to bargaining. I will give you Kolilalo if you agree to spare his father. The power also knew the value of the life it held and could raise the ransom if the life was valuable enough. A life for a life is fair enough, but to spare the king, I might need a hundred or two. And so they were given." The system was irrational, but its logic was relentless. If killing 200 peasants when the king of Buganda was ill, he's referring here to an actual event, would cure him, then a periodic prophylactic slaughter could assure his continued good health. Several years after a new king had assumed office in Buganda, he went on a ritual journey to visit the Nankere for the purpose of prolonging his life. The Nankere, head of the Lungfish clan, was never permitted to see the, see the king except on this occasion. When the time for the ceremony had been agreed upon, the Nankiri selected one of his sons, who was fed, clothed, and treated like a king, and housed in a special enclosure where the ceremony was to take place. The real king left the capital and stopped on his way at the temple of the god Mukasa to change his clothing. Most particularly, he took off whatever anklets he was wearing and made certain he did not put on any others. At their meeting, the Nankiri and the king exchanged gourds of beer. The king's mother attended the ceremony and saw her son for the last time. The Nankere intoned a solemn speech. The mother was urged to build a new house, for she was no longer to behold her son now that he had reached his maturity. To the king he said, You are now of age. Go and live longer than your forefathers. To assure the prophecy, the Nankere's son was brought in and presented to the sovereign, who turned him over to the bodyguard. They removed him and killed him by beating him with their fists. 
The muscles of the back of the victim were taken out and made into anklets for the king. A strip of skin was taken from the victim's body and turned into a whip, which the king kept in his enclosure to be used on special occasions. End quote. You know, again, the, the people of complex societies feel under constant threat of being swallowed up by chaos. You know, it's as if... It's as if... Have you ever heard... Um, you know, people sort of use this as, a, as an analogy for, for other things. If, you know, if you have a, a room full of monkeys banging away on typewriters, if you give them an infinite amount of time, maybe a hundred trillion years or whatever, they're banging away on typewriters that eventually, through f- just pure random chance, they're eventually going to randomly type out the entire corpus of Shakespearean plays in the order that they were written, right? If you give them enough time, it might be a hundred trillion years of them banging away, but at some point that order is going to emerge. And people in these early complex societies sort of have this sense of, 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 of having just somehow, by means that they don't quite understand, uh, achieved, you know, they've managed to type out Shakespeare. They're in the middle of typing it out right now, but they have this sense that at any moment, for any number of reasons, the whole thing could just collapse right back into chaos. That's how they feel all the time. This is the Aztecs saying that you know, they built their civilization along a windswept ridge with the abyss on either hand. The authority of the kinship system is breaking down, leaving them feeling unmoored, and yet, nevertheless, it's still potent enough that there does remain a threat of internecine tribal conflict. That tribal conflict is prevented by the imposed power of the king, who is also the agent by which the kinship system is being dismantled. The king himself is invariably a tyrant, presiding with uncertain power over an unsettled population. Being sedentary and agricultural, they adopt the cosmological pathologies of a people who can no longer trust the environment to reliably sustain them. Uh, You know, a natural disaster, an invading army, a plague, a famine, a usurping nobleman, a dispute over royal succession, any number of of ultimately inevitable events can cause the entire Tower of Babel to come crashing to the ground. And since they're no longer free nomads, but have been sort of domesticated in the human zoo, the people are not likely to make it out before that tower comes down on their heads. There's a passage in another one of my favorite American novels that pretty well describes the kind of violence that, ari- that, that arises out of, out of this type of anxiety and despair. It's a Vietnam story called The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. He's a veteran himself. Um, he starts off the book describing the men of his platoon, describing the things they carry with them, you know, the anchors that they cling to so as not to fly apart and lose themselves in the steaming chaos of the war in the jungle. The things they carry become reminders of the civilized men that they are, even as dead friends and dear John letters and their own confirmed kills drag them further and further from themselves. Men, many of them just out of boyhood, thousands of miles from home, standing every step on ground that might erupt with the explosion of a landmine, with every tree hiding a potential sniper, and the jungle just a few yards outside the vision of their watchstanders, populated in their minds with every kind of deadly trap and monster. The story 
is one of elevating tension punctuated by a series of traumas that always leave one or more of the men or one of their enemies in pieces. Quote, For the common soldier, at least, war has the feel, the spiritual texture of a great ghostly fog, thick and permanent. There is no clarity. Everything swirls. The old rules are no longer binding. The old truths are no longer true. Right spills over into wrong. Order blends into chaos, love into hate, ugliness into beauty, law into anarchy, civility into savagery. The vapors suck you in. You can't tell where you are or why you're there, and the only certainty is overwhelming ambiguity. In war, you lose your sense of the definite, hence you lose your sense of truth itself. End quote. Basically, it's just the realm of Tezcatlipoca, the smoking mirror, the obsidian smoking mirror. When nothing is true and everything is in flux, as your mind struggles to get a hold of gain some kind of control over your environment, over what's happening, the building panic can be suppressed by a supreme act of will, by imposing recognizable order onto the world, even if it's only recognizable to you because you're the one who put it there, by forcing the world to react to you. You know, stop trying to keep up. Stop trying to figure the world out. That's just leading to panic. Act and force the world to keep up and figure you out. I know it's a grotesque comparison, but you know, think of how the overwhelming world snaps into place for a mass shooter as he walks with his gun into a shopping mall, or for a suicide bomber who puts his thumb on the plunger button. All of a sudden, yeah, the world might be entirely hostile to them at that point, but at least it all falls into some kind of recognizable order. They know what's going on. Well, the young soldiers are carrying each other through the Vietnamese jungle in this novel, bonding amidst the carnage and sometimes pairing off as buddies according to chance and personality type. And two of them, Bob Kiley and Kurt Lemon, become close friends, and I'll pick it up here and quote it at length because it'll finish up this point well and because I want you to read this book. Quote, This is true. I had a buddy in Vietnam. His name was Bob Kiley, but everyone called him Rat. A friend of his gets killed, so about a week later, Rat sits down and writes a letter to the guy's sister. Rat tells her what a great brother she had, how together the guy was, a number one pal and comrade, a real soldier's soldier, Rat says. Then he tells a few stories to make the point, how her brother would always volunteer for stuff nobody else would volunteer for in a million years, dangerous stuff like going on recon or going out on these really badass night patrols. Stainless steel balls, Rat tells her. The guy was a little crazy, for sure, but crazy in a good way. A real daredevil, because he liked the challenge of it. He liked testing himself. Just man against gook. And I'm just realizing how I keep picking novels that have <laughs> racial slurs in them. That's not intentional, but anyway. Um, a great, great guy, Rat says. Anyway, it's a terrific letter. Very personal and touching. Rat almost balls writing it. He gets all teary, telling about the good times they had together. How her brother made the war seem almost fun, always raising hell and lighting up vills and bringing smoke to bear every which way. A great sense of humor, too. Like the time at this river when he went fishing with a whole damn crate of hand grenades. Probably the funniest thing in world history, Rat says. All that gore, about 20 zillion dead gook fish. 
Her brother, he had the right attitude. He knew how to have a good time. On Halloween, this real hot, spooky night, the dude paints up his body all different colors and puts on this weird mask and hikes over to a ville and goes trick-or-treating almost stark naked, just boots and balls and an M16. A tremendous human being, Rat says. Pretty nutso sometimes, but you could trust him with your life. And then the letter gets very sad and serious. Rat pours his heart out. He says he loved the guy. He says the guy was his best friend in the whole world. They were like soulmates, he says. Like twins or something. They had a whole lot in common. He tells the guy's sister he'll look her up when the war's over. So what happens? Rat mails the letter. He waits two months. The dumb coos never writes back. A true war story is never moral. It does not instruct, nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things men have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. If at the end of a war story you feel uplifted, or if you feel that some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you've been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie. There is no rectitude whatsoever. There is no virtue. As a first rule of thumb, therefore, you can tell a true war story by its absolute and uncompromising allegiance to obscenity and evil. Listen to Rat Kylie. Coos, he says. He does not say bitch. He certainly does not say woman or girl. He says coos. And then he spits and stares. He's 19 years old. It's too much for him. So he looks at you with those big, sad, gentle, killer eyes and says coos because his friend is dead and because it's so incredibly sad and true she never wrote back. You can tell a true war story if it embarrasses you. If you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for the truth. If you don't care for the truth, watch how you vote. Send guys to war, they come home talking dirty. Listen to Rat. Jesus Christ, man. I write this beautiful fucking letter, I slave over it, and what happens? The dumb coos never writes back. The dead guy's name was Kurt Lemon. What happened was, we crossed a muddy river and marched west into the mountains, and on the third day we took a break along a trail junction in a deep jungle. Right away, Lemon and Rat Kylie start goofing. They didn't understand about, about the spookiness. They were kids. They just didn't know. A nature hike, they thought, not even a war. So they went off into the shade of some giant trees, quadruple canopy, no sunlight at all. And there they and they were giggling and calling each other Yellow Mother and playing a silly game they'd invented. The game involved smoke grenades, which were harmless unless you did stupid things, and what they did was pull out the pin and stand a few feet apart and play catch under the shade of those huge trees. Whoever chickened out was a Yellow Mother, and if nobody chickened out, the grenade would make a light popping sound, and they'd be covered with smoke, and they'd laugh and dance around and then do it again. It's all exactly true. It happened to me nearly 20 years ago, and I still remember that trail junction and those giant trees and a soft dripping sound somewhere beyond the trees. I remember the smell of moss. Up in the canopy, there were tiny white blossoms, but no sunlight at all, and I remember the shadows spreading out under the trees where Kurt Lemon and Rat Kylie were playing catch with smoke grenades. Mitchell Sanders sat flipping his yo-yo, Norman Bowker and Kiowa and Dave Jensen were dozing, or half-dozing, and all around us were those ragged green mountains. 
except for the laughter things were quiet. At one point, I remember, Mitchell Sanders turned and looked at me, not quite nodding, as if to warn me about something, and then after a while he rolled up his yo-yo and moved away. It's hard to tell you what happened next. They were just goofing. There was a loud noise, I suppose, which must have been the detonator, so I glanced behind me and watched Lemon step from the shade into bright sunlight. His face was suddenly brown and shining. A handsome kid, really. Sharp gray eyes, lean and narrow-waisted. And when he died, it was almost beautiful, the way the sunlight came around him and lifted him up and sucked him high into a tree full of moss and vines and white blossoms. In a true war story, if there's a moral at all, it's like the thread that makes the cloth. You can't tease it out. You can't extract the meaning without unraveling the deeper meaning. And in the end, really, there's nothing much to say about a true war story, except maybe, oh. True war stories do not generalize. They do not indulge in abstraction or analysis. For example, war is hell. As a moral declaration, the old truism seems perfectly true, and yet because it abstracts, because it generalizes, I can't believe it with my stomach. Nothing turns inside. It comes down to gut instinct. A true war story, if truly told, makes the stomach believe. This one does it for me. I've told it many times, many, many versions, but here's what actually happened. We crossed that river and marched west into the mountains. On the third day, Kurt Lemon stepped on a booby-trapped 105 round. He was playing catch with Rat Kylie, laughing, and then he was dead. The trees were thick. It took nearly an hour to cut an LZ for the dust off. Later, higher in the mountains, we came across a baby VC water buffalo. What it was doing there, I don't know. No farms or paddies, but we chased it down and got a rope around it and led it along to a deserted village where we set up for the night. After supper, Rat Kylie went over and stroked its nose. He opened up a can of sea rations, pork and beans, but the baby buffalo wasn't interested. Rat shrugged. He stepped back and shot it through the right front knee. The animal did not make a sound. It went down hard and then got up again, and Rat took careful aim and shot off an ear. He shot it in the hindquarters and in the little hump at its back. He shot it twice in the flanks. It wasn't to kill, it was to hurt. He put the rifle muzzle up against the mouth and shot the mouth away. Nobody said much. The whole platoon stood there watching, feeling all kinds of things, but there wasn't a great deal of pity for the water buffalo. Kurt Lemon was dead. Rat Kylie had lost his best friend in the whole world. Later in the week, he would write a long, personal letter to the guy's sister, who would not write back, but for now it was a question of pain. He shot off the tail. He shot away chunks of meat below the ribs. All around us, there was the smell of smoke and filth and deep greenery, and the evening was humid and very hot. Rat went to automatic. He shot randomly, almost casually, quick little spurts in the belly and butt. Then he reloaded squatted down and shot it in the left front knee. Again, the animal fell hard and tried to get up, but this time it couldn't quite make it. It wobbled and went down sideways. Rat shot it in the nose. 
He bent forward and whispered something, as if talking to a pet. Then he shot it in the throat. All the while, the baby buffalo was silent, or almost silent. Just a light bubbling sound where its nose had been. It lay very still. Nothing moved except the eyes, which were enormous, the pupils shiny, black, and dumb. Rat Kylie was crying. He tried to say something, but then cradled his rifle and went off by himself. The rest of us stood in a ragged circle around the baby buffalo. For a time, no one spoke. We had witnessed something essential, something brand new and profound, a piece of the world so startling there was not yet a name for it. Somebody kicked the baby buffalo. It was still alive, though just barely, just in the eyes. Amazing, Dave Jensen said. My whole life, i never seen anything like it. Never? Not hardly. Not once. Kiowa and Mitchell, San Mitchell Sanders picked up the baby buffalo. They hauled it across the open square, hoisted it up, and dumped it in the village well. Afterward, we sat waiting for Rat to get himself together. Amazing, Dave Jensen just kept saying. A new wrinkle. I'd never seen it before. Mitchell Sanders took out his yo-yo. Well, that's Nam, he said. Garden of evil. Over here, man. Every sin's real fresh and original. All societies in periods of transition carry a sense of dread and anxiety. But probably no people express these feelings as clearly in their social lives as the Aztecs. Unmanaged anxiety turns into panic if the anxiety can't be discharged, and panic leads to violence. The Aztecs were a people in their adolescence. Powerful, aggressive, but inwardly uncertain of themselves. Fighting with the ferocity of sons intent on proving themselves as the proper heirs of the valley culture, and working their way, I think, toward a resolution of their mythology that might have helped them adapt to their new position as masters of men and playthings of the gods. I've long thought that the world historical greatness of any mythology is determined by whether it can face up to the incomprehensible arbitrariness of the universe without flinching. In the Hebrew Bible, for example, the Jews blunder through the first half of the story, imagining that if only they do the right things, they'll be rewarded as the chosen people of God. And when catastrophe comes again and again and again, they tell themselves that it must have been them doing something wrong, that they were just being punished for whoring after foreign gods, or that God deemed the injustice and wickedness of the elites intolerable. But it kept happening again and again, and it's not until the book of Job that these arguments are cast aside for the weak human attempts at control, which they in fact were. In India, the Bhagavad Gita, the great warrior Arjuna's mounted his chariot and stands ready to do battle in a civil war against many of his former friends and kinsmen. So he's torn between his duty as a warrior and his lawful obligation not to do violence to his family members, and he wavers and then finally throws down his bow, resolving not to fight. Um, now the Bhagavad Gita, by the way, is a portion of the Mahabharata, the great epic of Hindu civilization, similar in its role to the Iliad in ancient Greece. And like most great epic poetry, its tales told of the great battles that took place immediately before the inauguration of the present social order, the battles that established the current social order. 
just before the birth of civilization, when, when kinship and the state were still battling for supremacy. Arjuna, wavering before the battle, is trapped in this ambivalent attitude, unsure whether to shrink back into the family or to charge ahead to the insecure glories of civilization. And just at that point, his chariot driver and friend reveals himself to have actually been Vishnu, the high god, whose dream is the universe, and in a manner similar to Job in the whirlwind, he gives Arjuna a sacred vision of reality and what it's like at its foundations. And he said, Behold, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. You probably recognize that part. Arjuna then sees every warrior on both sides flying into the sharp-toothed mouths of Vishnu, popping like bloody grapes between his molars. He's shown that every warrior is already dead and being reincarnated into new forms. It's already happened, and it's happened before, and it will happen again. The universe is already destroyed and reborn again and again. And Arjuna is told not to look back, but to always move forward and act according to his duty as a warrior. The Aztecs hadn't achieved that kind of equanimity yet, but I think it's clear that they were working on it. I think they were on their way to coming up with something truly unique before they were murdered. In several of their seasonal agricultural festivals, they would make cakes out of seed dough in the shape of the relevant god, representative of their understanding that everything they consumed was a bit of the divine flesh or blood, sacrificed by the gods so that men might live, and knowing that every bite or every drink they took was owed back, and that ultimately the debt would become so great that the only way the Aztecs could repay it was with another life. Men ate the gods and then offered themselves back to the gods as food. An interruption in the cycle meant the end of the world of both men and gods. And all societies, including our own, seem to accept as self-evident the idea that some people must suffer degradation so that others might flourish and that the culture may flourish through them. But while our society looks away and pretends that we operate on some other basis, the Mashika didn't look away. And it's something that I think really does have a touch of greatness about it. The Mesoamericans built a whole cultural system around deciding one question. The gods are hungry, and we owe them food. So who among us dies today? sad and when you're lonely and you haven't got a friend just remember that death is not the end and all that you held sacred falls down and does not mend just remember that death is not the You cannot comprehend Just remember 
That death is not the end Remember that death is not the end. 